This episode contains major plot spoilers for Phantasm and Phantasm 2. Hi, and welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a bi-weekly show that's released every other Friday, and this is episode 82. On Horror Movie Podcast, you hear in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases, with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City, and my co-hosts will be joining me shortly. In this episode, we're going to be reviewing Phantasm and Phantasm 2 with special guest Matroid of the Sci-Fi Podcast. But first, I also have a feature review of Robert Eggers' The Witch from 2016, which is slated for release in theaters next Friday, February 19th. I hope that's going to be wide release. And of course, we'll have a couple of real-life horror news items for you as well, so thank you for joining us here in Horror Movie Podcast, episode 82. But without further delay, let's move into my feature review of The Witch. What went we out into this wilderness to find? Leaving our country, kindred, our father's houses. For what? For the kingdom of God. Let us pray. The Witch actually has a subtitle, which is A New England Folktale. And um, it's pretty exciting to me. We had actually been waiting to see this film for a little over a year now. I started hearing about it um, at the from the Sundance Film Festival in 2015. That's January of 2015. And in the meantime, we've heard um, great things from Kagan, from the magazine Film Conlant. <clears throat> and there's just been a lot of good news on this particular film. And so I finally get to catch up with it at a press screening. And it will be releasing next week so i hope i hope you will get to see it but what i'm going to do is give you a feature review right now and i will not reveal spoilers of course so just want to start out by talking about the salem witch trials for a moment uh, most people now understand that the horror of the salem witch trials wasn't that the accused were witches uh, the true horror is the fact that the women who were executed were not witches. And um, what we have here with Robert Eggers, the witch, he was the writer and director, by the way, uh, his story predates the events of Salem, actually. It's set like 60-some years, about 62 years uh, prior to that in the year 1630. So you got a period piece here. And it poses the question, what if an actual witch in the woods were terrorizing a community and basically um, unleashing her evil <laughs> in, in order to legitimately cause uh, legitimate suspicions among you know, the community members? Well, 
that's what we have here. And so the film opens with a family that's um, appearing in some kind of a court or a community council meeting where they're having this unpleasant debate, you know, that they've had a, a difference of views. And basically, long story short, the, the family decides to set out on their own. They're going to leave this settlement and try to establish a new home on their own. So they go out into the wilderness and they're going to make their own way in the world. Now, I always say on this podcast that um, horror happens to those who deserve at least. And it's no different in this film. So you've got this family of seven, a mother and father, and then five children who are trying to like survive out in the wilderness. And they do not have tremendous skills for this. They have some skills, but it's not going very well. And a profound heartache befalls them. And of course, uh, this is brought on onto them by a magical and mysterious <laughs> evil being in the woods. Okay. Now, I'm happy to report right here, because in case you're curious about this, um, this actually does feature a creepy witch. And you do get to see her a little. Not as much as I would have liked to have seen her, but unlike Blair Witch Project, you know, like we we actually have a witch in this movie that you could see. And the actual horrors of this film are conjured through the repercussions of this witch's attack, which is very insidious, right? So the real horrors of the witch are kind of manifest in the way that it depicts how tragedy can ripple through a family and start to tear it apart and cause additional tragedies. And so um, in The Witch, you have horror that's portrayed in various ways, like through the uh, crises of faith, where people are struggling with their beliefs and losing faith. You have a systematic loss of security within the family unit. And then you just have a deterioration of the nuclear family. Now, you're probably picking up on what I'm talking about right here, and you're probably thinking, okay, this sounds like a psychological horror film. And um, some people would even call this kind of a dialogue-heavy, slow-burn kind of a movie that's uh, kind of thin on its monster appearances and thin on violence, thin on gore. And, I, you know, all of that is fair to say about this movie. However... For people who've been listening to this podcast, you know me. I'm an impatient viewer. I'm notorious about this. And I can tell you that The Witch is still remarkably disturbing. And I'd actually uh, call this an art house witch film. If you remember several episodes ago, we did art house vampires. Well, this is kind of an art house witch film. But I do not feel like it's alienating. It's not so far out there that it's you know, too arty, so to speak, if there is such a thing. But I'm comfortable with saying that this is a witch film done right, finally, right? You know, it's actually a scary witch film. To me, it is. I think it's genuinely haunting, and it sticks with you. It really does. There are other horrific themes in this movie, too, like you got um, self-loathing due to one's own weakness or sin, for lack of a better word, you get the way that profound pain can just echo around a household. And you've got themes of 
parental regret, you've got themes of loss and grieving, and then you've got tough questions about spiritual salvation. So this is a very smart film. I mean, you don't have to be thinking the whole time while you're watching it, not that that's a bad thing, but, you know, it does have intellectual aspects where you could explore the themes a little bit deeper, and I find that extremely intriguing about a horror film. Now, this could even be adapted into a stage play, which I don't love plays, but I think this would make a remarkable play because it has a lot of high drama in it that actually escalates to this fevered pitch and it even approaches melodrama. Now, I know when people say melodrama, that gives you know a really bad taste in your mouth, but I'm not using that word in a pejorative sense. I mean <laughs> some heavy, thick drama is where this goes. So at the end of this month, everybody's probably aware, on February 28th, we're going to have the Academy Awards. And everybody listening to this podcast is also aware that horror films are usually snubbed or overlooked. They rarely earn any Academy recognition. But I tell you, if there were a horror film out there that would have some Oscar bait potential to get the Academy's attention, I would say it would be The Witch. Now, I'm sure that the technical prowess of this film is going to just be overlooked and it's going to be underappreciated, but I'm, I'm telling you, this is an art film um, with execution that is just excellent across the board. I mean, it is a, a very well-made film in, in so many aspects. But my biggest complaint, aside from wanting a little more of The Witch in it, is that the language that it's written in, it's kind of, you know, it's 1600s, King James-style Old English it's a little bit difficult to understand, at least it was for me, especially with the accents that the actors are using. I think that there may be viewers that find that a little bit alienating as they're watching the film, but ultimately I think it's kind of a nitpick because when you consider what the writer-director, Mr. Eggers, has done here, <laughs> I mean, he's made a convincing period piece with uh, great costumes, tremendous settings, and the performances are very good, too. I mean, the casting is great in this. So um, I'll even say that somehow, you know, the witch even manages to make animals look menacing. Um, there have been films in the past, not all of them serious, but like things like Monty Python and the Holy Grail or uh, Night of the Lepus or Lepus. They've tried uh, to make uh, rabbits seem scary, but... Even this film can make a rabbit very unsettling, and it pulls it off. It's just very impressive. Um, that's just one example. There are other animals that are creepy in this film, but um, earlier this year, like speaking of animals that are monsters in film, uh, we had a film called The Revenant, which is a Best Picture nominee, um, and there's a character in that one that's mauled by a bear in the woods. And I tell you, that was very upsetting and scary. But after seeing this movie, I think that a witch in the woods might actually be worse. So everybody's familiar with Hansel and Gretel, a little folktale, right? Pretty dark. And uh, the witch in that tends to target children, right? And that's what we have here as well. I mean, in The Witch, the 
it's very scary to think about children in peril or the endangerment of children or the loss of children or kidnapping. And so um, we got those kind of themes in here. And there are actually two very shocking scenes involving children that, to be honest with you, I'm not sure how they filmed it legally or how they got away with it. Now, that sounds really weird to say, but I mean, presumably the filmmakers have done some kind of sleight of hand there or else there would have been legal repercussions. And so the way I live with myself, you know, watching such a film, I mean, it's not graphic or anything and it's pretty brief, but well, saying it's not graphic might not be entirely accurate, but um, I I basically have just assumed that, okay, this was done in some lawful and careful way, but even though, you know, having said that and having believed that, the scenes are still troubling to watch. I can't really go into what they are, but you'll see if you watch the film. Now, for those who are uh, people of faith, if you are a believer, I'd say The Witch is also very unsettling on that front as well. If you remember back in 1973, The Exorcist was very upsetting to audiences because of the depiction of faith and how it fails the the characters in it and in the face of evil. And that's a, an extremely upsetting thing to happen even in a horror movie and this film here is similarly potent because we actually have people who are very fervent in their you know calling out for help and um, for deity and you know it's just help it doesn't seem to come in this movie it's it's pretty relentless that way and so as a believer myself everybody who listens to this podcast knows that I'm a believer I have reservations about films like this um, because it's such strong content and really against my grain, but, you know, it is, after all, a horror film. And I've said before that horror is helplessness and horror is hopelessness. And so that's what we have in The Witch. Now, another thing I do admire about this film is that it has horror in the daylight, it's another phrase I like, and to me, I mean, that's the boldest, a lot of times scariest kind of horror, and I think that this is accomplished here by the way they strike such a powerful tone and atmosphere. I mean, most of this film just has very dim lighting, or, you know, heavy shadows. I mean, uh, the, seriously, the mise-en-scene, like when you're looking at all the pictures, I mean, it seems like you could take a still shot of, the, of the, each of any frame of this film and then like hang it on your wall and have a very creepy and unsettling picture of just, it's just a beautiful film and it looks tremendous for a horror film. And I, I would say that, you know, even when you know that it's a sunny day, okay, in a shot, you're like, you can tell that it's been filtered to appear overcast and dismal. And so, you know, the characters are existing in a period where it appears to be late fall, okay, because the trees are leafless and lifeless as winter sets in. And that adds to the bleakness as well. And so it really, 
And by the end of the film, it really gets to you because you've just been kind of submerged in this darkness. And the score to this thing is just fabulous. I can't believe how just creepy and unsettling it really matches. It not only matches like the tone of what's happening on screen, but it even sounds like it's period appropriate. You know, as far as instruments, you get a lot of like violin and stringed instruments and they're scratching and scraping and um, just incredible soundtrack here. So anyway, everybody knows that I like to try to identify what kind of horror that we're talking about here. And so with The Witch, it has a tone that is definitely horror because the characters that we would identify with in this movie are all victims to be certain. And I would assign this into a category of classic horror because it's a drama first, psychological horror second, and a witch movie third. Okay, so this is a full-blown horror flick in the traditional sense. And I'll just tell you right now, I'm rating The Witch an 8.5 out of 10. I only took off um, one and a half points, and here's why. Um, the hard-to-understand language... It's really good, and it gives a real air of authenticity, usually. But it is a little bit distracting. It makes the film a tiny bit hard to follow. And so I only took off half a point for that. And then I'm taking off a whole point because I would have still liked to have a little more of The Witch. It wouldn't have to be a lot, but uh, we at least we do get to see her, and she is effective in this. And so I'm very happy about that. I would definitely encourage uh, the listeners out there to see The Witch in the theater. And this is a buy to me. It's a definite buy at 8.5 out of 10. And that is The Witch. So thanks for listening to that solo cast review there. Um, I've also posted a written version of basically everything I just talked about at horrormoviepodcast.com. You can find it right before the post for episode 82 here. It's dated February 12th, 2016. I'll link it in the show notes for this episode as well. So anyway, that brings us to uh, the time when I bring in my buddies into the show and we're going to get into some phantasm. Okay, so now it's time to welcome back my co-host. Joining me tonight, we have... Dave, Dr. Shock Becker from just outside Philly, PA. And Wolfman Josh, you think, Jay, when you die, you go to heaven, but you come to us. <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way, sir. <laughs> well, good, because the ice cream is going to be flying fast and furious. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Well, we are so happy tonight because we have a tremendous special guest. You know, there are some people, Josh and Dave, who podcast very enthusiastically. And I think that it just takes their podcasting to a whole new level. And this is one such man. He is the host of the sci-fi podcast. We welcome back our friend, Matroid. Hey, hey guys. <laughs> Thanks hey, for having me. Hey. Back. I'm excited. Well, good. Yeah. And then I understand Matroid. Josh tells me that Phantasm is your jam, so to speak. Josh is a liar. Oh, really? No, no, no. Honestly, Phantasm has a very special place in my heart. It's right there with like crystal clear Pepsi for an indicator. I remember. <laughs> I remember that. Next, this is for Dave. This is dedicated to Dave right here. Sometimes on Horror Movie Podcast, we have news stories that are actual real life horror. And 
this story here is probably just like a hoax news story or maybe like a, a something to drum up tourism in a certain region, but it still gave me cold shivers as I read it, and I thought of Dave Becker immediately. This is from MSN.com, and the, <laughs> the title is Horrified Cabbies Pick Up Ghost Passengers in Area Devastated by 2011 Japanese Tsunami. Have you guys heard about this? No. I did read about that, actually. <laughs> did you get chills? No. Naturally? I don't. Oh, okay. I don't. Okay. I don't think ghosts are scary. Like, the devil, ghosts, they don't scare me. Okay. If it was just some weird guy with no mouth, I probably would have cried myself to sleep. Okay. <laughs> Guys with no mouth, he has issues with that. Okay, well, I can understand. So, here, here's what it says. I'll just read a tiny bit, and then I'll get to the, the good stuff, and then we'll move on from all this weirdness. Horror, let's see. At least seven taxi cab drivers in Northeast Japan have reported experiencing a phantom fare, F-A-R-E, in the wake of the devastating tsunami and earthquake. In each instance, the story is similar. A taxi driver in Japan picks up a passenger in an area. I'm pretty sure I already read that. That's weird. So he starts the meter and asks for the destination, to which the customer gives some strange response. And either then or sometimes later, the driver turns around to address the man or woman passenger and the passenger has vanished. <laughs> and this, wow. is, this is because it is claimed it was a ghost passenger who was in fact killed in the disaster five years ago. Wow. And um, there's, there's one particular example here that, that really kind of creeped me up. <clears throat> so this, this woman got in the car and in the cab and she said, please take me to the... Um, something district i can't pronounce it and in response he told her that the area was almost empty and he asked her if she was sure that she wanted to go there and the woman replied in a trembling voice have i died and then chillingly the driver said he turned around in his seat and no one was there <laughs> so, oh man so that's, that's scary <laughs> yeah seriously. Oh, that is very yeah that's very scary and so there are seven different accounts and they're all kind of similar and so either, you know, this cab service is trying to like, you know, drum up controversy in order to get people to take some cabs to see if they discover, you know, see anything, or this is legitimately real because more than 6,000, let's see, the Japanese National Police Agency confirmed that almost 16,000 people were killed in that disaster and um, almost 2,500 remain missing. So that's very sad. Wow. This is like a great cab hack as they as the young kids say these days though you tell some you tell the cab driver i'm going somewhere really far away and your true destination is on the way there and then you just bail out of the cab halfway through the ride <laughs> and when they get there they're like what he's gone oh that's funny <laughs> i really like that phantom fair as we get started here we got a lot of good things we're going to cover but first i got to provide a little context back in july of 2015 I became indignant after seeing a horror movie called The Gallows. That for better became indignant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I did. That's true. I like that. I like that. For those who saw the film, the premise is in The Gallows, it's about a school that's ostensibly haunted because several years prior during the school play, one of the actors was accidentally hanged during a prop malfunction on set. And that's during the course of the play. Well, weirdly and sadly, life imitates art. And once again, I read a headline. It read, 
Italian actor declared clinically dead after botched hanging scene during play. And this was Italian actor Raphael Schumacher. He was declared clinically dead after strangling himself during the performance of a play in Pisa. The 27-year-old performer had been in a coma since Saturday and um, because of this production, and it went um, horribly wrong. And um, so what happened, there was a medical student in the, ov- in the audience observing the performance, and he noticed that Schumacher, the actor, was um, trembling when he was hanging there. I guess he had a bag over his head, and so they couldn't actually see his face, but he noticed the behavior of his body, and so he ran up there and removed it and took him down, and he was taken to the hospital. But it's very sad because they, they actually reported that the theater's art director said that initially in the play they had planned to um the, 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 the it was going to be a shooting right but this guy who got hanged schumacher he had altered the script to replace the fake gunshots with the noose so it's it's very um chilling and upsetting but that's our uplifting story for the day Wonderful. So there you go. But I just think it's weird, right? Because we just had a movie about that. So if it if it was suicide or something, I want. I mean, he potentially could have gotten the idea from seeing the gallows. I'm I'm just saying because it came out last summer. So that's well, maybe also he just saw the gallows and thought that movie. Well, yeah, why why go on? Yeah, the movie's <laughs> freaking horrible. Yeah, I know. Not to make light of his unfortunate accident, but I'm just saying. I'm saying that without having seen the gallows. So I and I'm saying uh, that because I can't. I, just, I was someone pointed out to me that I'm dumb this week, and it's I just cannot let low hanging fruit go. I must make comment. <laughs> I like that about you, actually. I think oh, it's, good. I think yeah. it's great. And a lot of times it's my expense, and that's okay because I, <laughs> I make I make the big bucks. If you toss the softball, I have to hit it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Okay, and at this point in episode 82 of Horror Movie Podcast, we're going to move into our feature review of Phantasm. Phantasm. Is it a nightmare? Phantasm. Is it an illusion? Phantasm. Is it an evil? You have to take me home. But what? No questions. You must take me home. Phantasm. Is it a fantasy? It 
If this one doesn't scare you, you're already dead. Phantasm. This trailer, is it a nightmare? Is it an illusion? Is it a fantasy? I'm like, I don't know. Why, why can't, why don't you tell me what it is? First of all, <laughs> then it goes, is it an evil? Is it alive? I'm thinking those aren't even parallels. What, why are these <laughs> in the equation as possibilities? <laughs> but then the trailer actually says, whatever it is. I'm like, you don't even know what it is. <laughs> That's because this is a true kitchen sink movie. And you know, you've been waiting for the release of that movie kitchen sink. For a while, I think one of our listeners let us know it has since been released, I believe, under the title Freaks of Nature. Um, mm. But this this is the original kitchen sink movie. I mean, this has it all. And um, and they don't they, they seem very it's almost like an anthology film that was never sewn together. It's just it's got these kind of scenes that are these disparate elements. Um, they don't seem to lead one to another. The story of Mike who's your main character, I suppose, is a little boy um, who his parents have recently died um, and his older brother is his guardian. But his older brother is a cool guy who looks like a precursor to Knight Rider, to uh, David Hasselhoff's <laughs> character in Knight Rider. It's true. Michael and Knight. He does look like Michael Knight in a couple of those leather jacket scenes. Um, but Jody, his older brother, doesn't really want to be you know, stuck watching the kid. He wants to hit the road in his cool Barracuda and cruise around. And, um, and so Mike is kind of distraught about this idea of his brother leaving so much so that he's following him around everywhere he goes. This stuff's really effective. I thought this was interesting. Um, but he ends up following him to weird places. Like he follows him to a funeral and watches him, uh, through binoculars at a funeral before, riding his dirt bike through a cemetery or he follows him to a bar and then watches his brother uh, have a kind of sexual encounter in a graveyard. So it gets a little weird. Um, but at the heart of the story is this tale of these two brothers and their loss of their parents and kind of dealing with that. And I think the film ultimately is a metaphor for that pain, um, but it's not clear um, from watching it, it's just it's a lot of weird stuff kind of all thrown in there, and some of it's really cool, and some of it's really bad. Um, but it was quite an experience. It, it was to me, this isn't it's so bad it's good movie. Like, and and those are really hard to do because I don't like bad for bad sake. I don't like when people put on bad mm. very often. But this was actually trying to be good like the actual the filmmaking talent seemed to be especially for the budget which was like three hundred thousand dollars seemed to be very um ambitious and um in control yet uh the script apparently that they were working with was totally batshit like it's just like <laughs> what do like don't do whatever you want to do it, it was it was insane, and so in the way that Troll Two is so bad, it's good. This is this felt like that to me too. It's like the filmmaking's decent, but what's on mm -hmm. screen is crazy. And yeah. there are a few different explanations for that we can discuss down the line. But mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I was I was really impressed, and I had a very um, 
interesting experience. Like my backstory with these films is I didn't like what I had seen and I had avoided them for years. And this was my first time actually sitting down and watching any of these movies start to finish. <laughs> and, um, and I had a great time. It felt like I was watching Harold and Maude, but like a horror movie version. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> I like that. So yeah, I sense. So Josh, and, and maybe, maybe most of the horror community feels this way. I actually, I have a little bit of a reverence for this movie actually, but I'll, I'll get into that. But, but honestly, so are you telling me, Josh, I, I sense a little bit of a, a mocking to, to it. Not, not like disrespectfully. It's, it's really bad. I mean, it, it, it reminds me not a little bit of troll two. There are these little dwarves that snort and uh, people who are deceased are then crushed into dwarf size. Uh, it doesn't, right? there's no reason to it. First of all, like blasphemers. <laughs> Thank you, Metroid. Thank you. Great mortis impersonation. Okay. Um, I liked it. Like I, I enjoy the film. I'm saying I enjoyed it, but it is crazy. If you actually try to say like, okay, so that scene happened. What was the point of it? How does that, how does point A lead to point B? It's nearly impossible to tie any of the horror scenes together. Yeah. Like the through line of the brothers makes sense. Okay. Like the, uh-huh. the, the Mike and Jody story makes a lot of sense. Uh-huh. The story that doesn't make sense is this <laughs> tall man who's working in the mortuary and crushing normal people down to size that he digs up from the graveyard, but he also has human slash zombie servants. And also he's luring people from the local bar into the graveyard to have sex with them. And like, why is, what is going on? What is their plan? Once their plan is revealed, it's nonsense. It's completely nonsense. Hang on, hang on. (laughs) Josh, sorry, I, I just have to jump in. See, I, yes, on paper, everything you're saying, is accurate. That's an accurate description of this movie. But the thing to me, it's always been about, um, you know, this is a a horror experience. This is um, freaky because this is an alien we're talking about, and aliens would do things to us that we don't understand. Just give me rules with <laughs> within this world that this world is operating on, and I'm happy. Like like. This movie predates Nightmare on Elm Street, and mm-hmm. it does a few things that a Nightmare on Elm Street does as well. But Nightmare is really good about establishing the fe- tone and feel of the dream world. Um, it's really good at kind of signaling to the audience what is and what isn't possible within the world, even though so much is possible in that series. It still understands it's like the viewer can understand the bounds of that character and those, in those films. So um, this not, this not so much. Josh, Jason, do you mind if I, please? Or or if you want to start leading this, no, be uh, be my guest. I want to hear what you have to say, Metroid. So Josh is wrong about all that. (laughs) I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, My feelings on it are, are, are very different for specific reasons, which makes it difficult to review, um, kind of unbiased or impartial. But I will say this about the movie, and I think that uh, what the director, and he wrote it as well, and I can never say his name, Coscarelli. Yeah, Dan Coscarelli. Don Coscarelli. Coscarelli. He's, you know, who I just, I love, I love his stuff. I think he's awesome. But uh, the point of this, 
Yeah, exactly. Bubba Hotep's <laughs> it, it's a it's a Metroid Station standard. So, um, but one of the big things about this movie is that it's not supposed to feel uh, connective. It's not supposed to feel like it's um, gelled in a way that a normal movie would. So when you while you have rules that need to be established within uh, a movie's universe, for example. Um, like you gave the Nightmare on Elm Street example, where Freddy has specific rules that he has to abide by, and so do the teens. And those change from movie to movie, but they're set up within each movie to follow them, you know, and they're followed pretty closely. Yeah. This movie is designed to be like a dream, and it's very effective. I, can, I mean, I am, you know, this is not patting myself on the back. I'm just an extremely creative person, and it's, it can be kind of troublesome sometimes because it's hard for me to like abide by the rules of my universe sometimes. <laughs> and, uh, and this, this is how I dream. I, it, bizarre, nothing kind of goes together. Next scene, there's like a blind gypsy woman who's a fortune teller and you put your hand in a box and it's, <laughs> and it hurts. your hand gets stuck. And, and, and then the scene after that, you're walking by your buddy Reg, who's loading ice cream. And all of a sudden this scary guy gets weirded out by it. Like, it doesn't have to make sense to to deliver a horrific and unsettling uh, tone and kind of a feel, which is was the point of this movie, I think. It was to make people feel uncomfortable in the way they do when they wake up from a very disconcerting dream. And in but that way, it, I think it's super successful. Well, But my problem with it and the problem with the dream logic is – that when you know when you hear someone explain a dream to you and you're like this is the most boring story I've ever heard yeah <laughs> because it doesn't flow for the viewer like for the listener for the viewer it flows for the person telling the story because it was this really vivid experience this is funny because I've just barely this last week posted a dream on Facebook which is ridiculous now that I'm saying this but um <laughs> but it's true like it's hard to follow the emotion um when the plot threads don't tie together. And so um I think as a viewer it's not maybe maybe as a if it's a classic film for you guys, I can see that. Like I can see how even if the next time I watch this, going back thinking about it in the in the world of a dream, I could understand that. But going into it a first time and looking for a plot and trying to understand why does this horror scene end? And then the following scene seems to completely undo everything that happened in that previous scene where like it, it just it's so hard to track as it's happening yeah i would agree with that mm-hmm. completely i just don't and and really as a first-time viewer uh i wasn't old enough to understand some of that when i first saw this you know it was just like what am i watching this is so scary and cool and weird and <laughs> funny and and purple dress you know it's like it, it i just didn't get it but i love you were the really fact- focused on that purple dress the first yeah <laughs> Trust me, Um, but there was just enough connective tissue, if you want to use it that way, between everything that the the story of the brothers is a it's a truly moving story. In that I had a brother that was a lot older than me that I followed around that I wanted to be like that I more or less worshipped, and I I know not like in this movie, but I observed him in plenty of situations that were probably like, well, you know, go to bed or get out of here, you know. But I was like. I want to watch what you're doing. I want to model my life after you. So to have that in my life and to watch it on the screen, it's pretty good. I think they do a pretty convincing job of, of letting us see that and say this is real. And then you've got this little kid that's like, 
going through little kid nightmares. It's little kid dream stuff. It's weird. And he's trying to convince his brother, who plays a cool Fender Strat, and his brother's best friend. And the parents have died. And so this kid's going through a lot of trauma. And when I look at it from that way, I'm like, yeah, kids are weird. And they do weird stuff. And when there's an emotional trauma, it, it gets strange. And things don't always connect. Now, that's a lot of reaching. And as a filmmaker, you probably say, that's garbage. This is why you don't write for, for movies. But And you'd be right, I think, in that point. But I do think there's more to it uh, than simply trying to tie together everything for one cohesive plot, if that makes any sense. Yeah. What do you say, Dr. Shock? What, what are your feelings on the first Phantasm? Um, like I said, I didn't get a chance to rewatch it. But from what I'm, I'm remembering, yeah, it's, it's out there. I mean, there's, there are some very strange things. I mean, that I remember as I was watching I, uh, at least three times, like, what the hell? You know? Um, right as the first time through, but I'm, I'm seeing what Matroid's saying. It, it is a lot like, it is a lot like a dream. I mean, I think, I think one of the first was in, in that graveyard scene um, with, with the whole luring out there for sex and all of a sudden it's the tall man. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, uh, it's a trip. I mean, it's just like one of those, one of the things I, I like about movies is when they're unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Um, this one is definitely unpredictable. I don't know if it goes a little beyond that. Like Josh was saying, I mean, there don't seem to be any set set rules, but it's interesting. I mean, it, ke- it does keep you sort of glued, even though even though you're sort of scratching your head saying, what's going on here? It does. It keeps you. It keeps your attention. At least it kept my attention. Like I didn't I wasn't I wasn't fading. I wasn't losing interest with it. Yeah. And I honestly I think that's the power of the film, like for me, at least. I 99.9% of the time, probably everybody knows this by now, that I, I'm pretty strict about parameters. I like a, a world with parameters. And so I, I feel you there, Josh. I'm, I'm also the kind of guy that horror affects me more when it's more credible and realistic and more closer to what I'm used to experiencing in the world. However, there's something special about this movie, and maybe it was just seeing it when I was younger. I mean, this came out in 1979, everybody, and and I probably didn't see it until, I don't know, I'm guessing the mid-80s, at least. I mean, Uh around 10 years old or something. But but, And maybe that's part of it. We always have to to take that into account with this this era of movies, like, you know, late 70s, 80s stuff is the nostalgia. I think most people saw this when the sequel came out, to be honest. Oh, really? It was a big 80s, hit. Yeah. Like for its budget, it was a hit. Like it was a three hundred thousand dollar movie that made twelve million, and so at the time it came out, like a lot of people did see it. But mm-hmm. you know, it was so long before there was a sequel that I think most people experienced that um, upon the release of the sequel. Mm-hmm. And the, the sequel was also released by a studio, whereas this was a independent film. Yeah. Well, I was one thing I was going to ask you guys is how. Uh, do we know, do we even know how like prevalent this became? Because the reason I ask that is because I have this very unofficial theory about this movie. This movie seems to inform a lot of the 80s horror cinema to me. I mean, I know that was 1979, but the things that we see in here, the flavor of this film really reflects what we come to see in that following decade. And so I wonder... You know, maybe this wasn't very prevalent at all, like you just said, Josh, but maybe among horror filmmakers, maybe they did see this creative work and kind of took a page out of the, the tone of it and the look of it. And maybe it did influence 80s horror cinema. 
No, I think by horror standards, and especially by independent film standards, this was a huge hit when it came out. Mm-hmm. I just don't think um, – I think it became ubiquitous with the release of the second film because – and that's when everybody started seeing this on television and stuff like that. Yeah. Right. In VHS, right, which didn't exist right. when the film was originally released. True. Right. Or at least not, not readily available. So was this on like HBO or Cinemax? Because somehow I saw it like in the – Maybe like you said, so you are you saying, Josh, that you really couldn't find this again until '88 when the sequel came out? Was that I your just experience? Know that when this was released, or sorry, when the second film was announced, a lot of people were like, "Wait, what? Is there a Phantasm One?" You know, and <laughs> right, uh, yeah, but you know, I, it, but, it, it, it was ahead. after the it was after the sequel came out that I saw the first one. I know that for a fact. Oh, it was okay. not. It was not a cable movie for me. I mean, a lot of the horror movies like the Friday the 13th and you know things like Funhouse and all that were cable movies for me. This was not one of them. I don't r- recall this playing on either HBO or, or Prism, which was the local, you know, Philadelphia, I guess local Philadelphia mm. uh, cable station at the time. I don't recall seeing this movie on either of those. Wow. Okay. Okay. Those what about prior to prior to the, the sequel? When did you see it, Matroid? Just curious. Well, I saw, I actually saw uh, the bulk of the second film first. Um, and I, I'll save that story for when we're talking about the movie. But uh, it, it inspired me to track this down. And I had a friend that had uh, his like mom co owned a video store or something. And we were able to get this and watched it probably five or six times over the course of a weekend. Nice. And uh, it, you know, and I love your comment about this kind of setting up some of the 80s horror or at least being a part of that because it's a pretty shocking movie, especially for an independent film. You, It's plenty gory. It's weird. Mm-hmm. And it's got just enough of that kind of 80s – I don't want to say vibe. I don't want to say je ne sais quoi because I can't say it right. But it has that intangible <laughs> like – touch to it that feels 80s which for me is that's usually reason enough to go back and watch something yeah it was such a nostalgic period for us you know we were, uh, we were all basically children at that time or or teens or whatever but that was i mean that was a huge time for me so being able to go back and see this and, and watch it over and over again over the course of a weekend it became something else and it really for me at first viewing was Phantasm 2 and not even the complete thing so I thought the entire scope of these movies was <laughs> mostly just the the spheres and the tall man yeah. so imagine my surprise right. I'm like where's the spheres why is this kid riding a motorcycle over these graves in a cemetery <laughs> very disrespectful why do you like such a hole? I know <laughs> yeah. but I will say these movies contain something Jason I do my homework and I gotta say I don't do it on purpose but I do my homework through this weird memory thing that I have, but these movies have horror in the daylight, and I know you love that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. They do. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Um, Absolutely. In fact, one of the very first really unsettling scenes in this, which is still to this day one of my favorite scenes, it's such a small effect, but when, when he witnesses, when Michael witnesses the tall man pick up that casket by himself, and yeah. like manhandle it basically, and he's an older man. Um, I mean, that's kind of chilling, and I think that's a very subtle effect. And maybe, maybe viewers 
this is a theory uh, too. I mean, maybe viewers don't really quite register why that's weird at first, but right before that, they show a casket being removed with six pallbearers, six men trying to like, you know, carry this thing. And then like, you know, it's juxtaposed and the next scene follows up with the tall man manhandling that casket. And that's really unsettling. So yeah, that's right there. Horror in the daylight. (laughs) There's just a couple more things on the kind of making of the movie before we jump further into it. Um, This was an independent film. It was shot over the course of an entire year. Like it was like, hey, let's shoot this movie on weekends and see what we can scrape together. I think that may have something to do with the disjointed feel of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Further, the actor who played Mike was going through puberty while they were filming the movie. And so he actually grows quite a bit during the course of the film. Um, And they they went through a lot to kind of hide how different he looked at different points of the film in yeah. terms of his growth. Oh. Um, yeah. So I thought those were kind of interesting. Um, yeah. I also, I, but I don't know. I just keep coming back to this marketing thing because it's just like, they have no idea. Phantasm. Is it an illusion? <laughs> Phantasm. <laughs> we have no idea what this movie is or how to market it. You can almost see that that was, yeah, that, that, that was the meeting that the, the executives, the, the, the distributors were having. Yeah, let's just put that. Well, what what is what? Like they they basically took their notes from the meeting and said, "Okay, there's the trailer." It's definitely not a high concept, as they say. You know what I mean? And it's Uh like uh, there are so many components to it, which is something I really appreciate. But really, uh, like for those who just are deciding to listen to this review, you know, spoilers and all, it it really boils down to this alien who is um, <laughs> like, I, I guess. Well, okay, let's what, hear it, Jay. Let's hear what happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just think it, it comes down to this alien who is essentially harvesting or collecting these corpses. They're dead bodies on Earth, but he ships them back to whatever dimension, whatever planet, right? And, and, so and enslaves this them in there. some ways in a really effective manner, which is taking over uh mortuaries and then clearing out the graveyards like that seems super effective for what his mission is right well yeah and yeah. then he turns some of them into dwarves that are assisting him but others into dwarves that he's trapped into like containers and then also he's making himself look like a woman and stabbing people with knives additionally like he's like there are 300 <laughs> bodies in the cemetery but you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna spend the entire evening luring a guy over here and then stab him with a knife p.s there's a caretaker who's human that is looks kind of like he's dying like he's got like the zombie face but he's human he's not he doesn't have yellow blood so he's got red blood when he dies there's just so it just makes no sense so to be to be fair, I do think it's actually high concept when you start to piece it out and establish the story. When once you start to watch the other movies, it it maybe isn't high concept in the in the idea that you can derive great wisdom from it. Uh, it doesn't really have much of a moral tale so much. But the fact that we have like a dimension skipping, and I, I've heard the whole alien. Uh, I've heard people refer to the tall man as an alien, and I think that the fourth movie kind of maybe switches the way we look at that. But mm-hmm. regardless, uh, the idea that there's a dimension hopping being out there that is using humans for purposes we don't understand. Uh, there's something about that, that, that inspires 
interest or, or kind of there's some intrigue there that I think is far beyond the bad guy wants to rob a bank, bad guy wants to steal the girl, bad guy wins, right? Like there's there's something there to be said about creativity and ingenuity in, yeah. in trying to develop something that is so unique. And, it's an art film in a lot of ways. Yeah, it totally is an art film. And I it actually is. really like that you say that because as one who is – who and Josh, you can attest to this – Rarely do my creations, whether they be writing or music or anything else, have enough structure to be considered anything other than like somewhat artsy or weird. And that's not on purpose, but I can bond with this movie because I can sense that there's something trying to be told. And yeah, they had no idea how to market it. All they probably had to say is, do you dream? Well, hopefully you don't dream like this or something else, you know, like because it, it's just it's scary in that way. But instead, actually, that would have been an awesome that would have been an awesome tagline. Yeah. Cop- copyright dream. Hopefully you don't dream <laughs> like this. That, that would have been that was that was probably I don't know what the tagline was for this movie, but I bet you that's a better tagline than they had for the movie. Yeah. I think the tagline if this doesn't scare you. You're already dead is the tagline. Yeah. And okay. clearly, even if you're dead, it might be kind of scary because you might be a zombie or you might be <laughs> the daughter or the great granddaughter of a lady telling the future. Well, and, and the <laughs> that's thing, the part that gets weird to me. If you're a already dwarf, dead, a dwarf in a, a dwarf in a monk's cloak. <laughs> <laughs> yes. If you're already dead, you're a target for the tall man. I mean, you're going to be enslaved on his planet or wherever it is. So, but I, yeah, I can't underscore enough I, for me why I think it's effective and i actually think this film works it really does to me just because it's the the concept of we we don't know because i do i read him as an alien matt i i just and and i've heard and and this doesn't matter because you know whoever can you know you can interpret it however you want but i've heard i think what also encourages me that way is i've heard um angus scrim refer to him as an alien i've heard um, i have too yeah yeah so i think when don coscarelli pitched this to him i think he said something to the effect of do you want to play an alien right that's at the beginning oh, of the right the, the little film interview thing but but besides setting that aside we just don't know like when you watch communion josh what about that like when you watch oh, the movie oh. communion which is a freaky movie oh, oh we're covering that pretty soon by the way on the sci-fi podcast. oh i can't wait to hear that so yeah christopher walken um that's a that's a very creepy movie and you have no idea what the aliens are doing there and i think that's why this works too you just don't know what aliens are doing with humans and that's why it is foreign to us or quote unquote alien to us but that's not what makes the movie confusing dude like it's a totally different (laughs) (laughs) that's the cop out that's the cop out way yeah. <laughs> um, just to be fair, this was based on a dream. Coscarelli supposedly had a dream where he was being chased by skull piercing silver orbs um, through marble hallways, and that was kind of the inception point for him writing the screenplay. Mm-hmm. So, which is um, a that may well scene. Yes, right? it is. That's, that's, the, that's the best scene. Of, yeah, that's that's probably my favorite scene in the movie. It's the reason I, that that the franchise lasted. I'm sure. Sure, that one scene. But there's something about it that is – I mean, no one likes mausoleums. They, they, they're weird. They're cold. Yeah. They're beautiful in a way that is very unsettling. And, mm-hmm. and it's like craftsmanship with very hard-to-come-by beautiful stonework that is also like housing the dead. Like it's it's just right. not not okay in a lot of ways. It's, it's very foreign and almost Italian horror and some of that. 
And then you get this beautiful, shiny object that has to be some kind of alien device or whatever. And it seems unstoppable. It's just, it's really, really weird. It clashes in, in a very effective and beautiful way. It, I mean, it could have been two hours of that. And I would have been like clapping my hands at the end like a stupid monkey wanting more. It was so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I the, the silver orb, I know a lot of people call it a sphere, but like that thing, that that's, that's one of my favorite Sentinel. aspects. Yeah. Well, they're awesome. Should we talk about them a little bit more? Mm-hmm. Go for it. I just think to me, it's like, it's the one element of the film that you're like, this I've never seen before in a good way. Like there are a few things I've never seen before, but they're not the best. And this is, oh wow. Like this is wholly original to this movie. It's super effective. It's scary, gory, grosses you out. I mean, everything about the spheres is, is perfect. So um, I don't know. To me, that and the tall man are a great mixture. I do think the tall man is underused um, the way kind of Freddy is in the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie. But mm-hmm. I would agree. Yeah. I think the spheres yeah. are too. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Agreed. By the way, I, I read that the way they filmed that is they had an MLB pitcher um, was brought in to throw fastballs, basically would take the balls and throw them down the hallways away from camera. And then they would reverse that footage and um, slow it down so it looked like they were floating toward camera. No, he's throwing a, a slider, I think, so it actually drop. Oh, cool. That's how they get that look where it almost looks like it's kind of – and it's really, like, atmospheric and haunting how it kind of yeah. does this – it has this natural arc to it, and then when it starts to come down, yeah. like it's going to attack – that I every time I see it, I've seen these movies so many times, and I'm a grown man, and I'm I'm not afraid of anything anymore. I get so nervous when they start to show those things. It's like this <laughs> primal. It's gonna come through my TV. It's going to drill into my forehead, and I'm screwed. And mm-hmm. you know the little freaky ass Jawas. They're scary, but they don't compare to the spirits. Those things are really terrifying. Mm-hmm. Apparently, um, this film came out well after star Wars, but apparently they were filming this while star Wars was being released because it took them so long to film it. Right. And, um, one of the guys from the crew came back to set and said, uh, uh they've got your dwarves in the movie <laughs> referring to the job. <laughs> oh, but they look like your aunt Carol. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I apparently Coscarelli <laughs> considered changing the robe color. Um, but then they decided it wasn't worth reshooting. So, yeah, well, I'm gl- I'm glad they didn't. It, one thing that I think is underpraised, one aspect of this film is the uh the sound. Like the the score is tremendous to me. This oh, is I love it. This would be in my my top no kidding, probably top 15 all-time favorite horror scores. It's so derivative though. I mean, but, it's cool. Well, I don't you know, that doesn't bother me because like all, all great, <laughs> all great artists steal. Right. So everything's derivative one way. Well, or there's, some, there's some Halloween in it a little bit. Yeah. And sus- yeah. heavy Suspiria. I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 But since Suspiria sucks, at least like this is something, <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is for a worthy cause. <laughs> Suspiria sucks. No, I'm just no. kidding. No, I'm not kidding. Actually, I hate that Suspiria. sucks. And this is good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, because um, I can stay awake while watching Phantasm was one reason. But no, like... Oh, the, the, You're like, wait, what happened? Wait, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, ugh. don't even get me started on Suspiria, Josh. Anyways. That's a late. conversation for another day. Yeah, right? we'll, we'll save that. We'll save that. 
it's funny how how <laughs> how that divides people though that movie. But anyway, I, I love the soundtrack to this, and I think the music is it puts me right there. It almost takes me back in time to this period. And and yeah, I can't I can't really defend the extent to which it is probably somewhat nostalgic, but I don't care. It puts me in the movie in so much I could. I mean, I don't do this obviously, but I could like live with putting this movie on every night kind of in the background. This is like my Flash Gordon of horror. (laughs) People have heard me say before, like the Flash Gordon movie from 1980. Man, I love that freaking movie. I do too. It's not great. It's awesome. Yeah, and on some level, it's it's a bad movie, if we're being honest. Oh, it's, but, it's on, on many levels, it's a bad movie, but I, I love it. I do, too, and I, and I kind of feel like this is my Flash Gordon of horror, and they're almost like a great little companion set, not that I would play them back-to-back, but but maybe I should. But I'm just saying, so there's that, and then there's the other sound effects, like like the little um, the dwarves. I, I guess you're saying you like the dwarf sound effects. No, I, I hate it. It's I, so scary. I, I like it. Yeah, it sucks. It the sucks. Time, it sucks. It's, the first time you hear it, it sounds like hogs. And then by the time you hear it the second time, <laughs> it sounds like there's a werewolf behind him in the woods. And he's not even like startled. He's like, oh, I'm still going to watch this sex scene play out. Even though there's clearly a monster behind me. <laughs> Josh, well, they sound like the weird, like, congested dogs that are about to eat your face. It's like a thousand Cujos in the same room. Yeah, and it's almost like they're wearing a mat, like a metal Darth Vader mask or something. Like, like there, there's a little bit of a metallic ring or twinge to it, and it's really unsettling to me. I actually, I think it's a very original, like, soundtrack. Like, the sound design to this is quite good, I think. I'm really surprised. What about the two silver poles in the white room that's trimmed in black you know in the in the corners where the walls meet I actually also lo- very- I love that room right and and I love those two random poles there I mean Josh no love for that because I, I feel like you're being a little dismissive on this movie a little hard on I like it. that part okay okay I don't like I like the way it looks in the room I like that everything that plays out but to have them not give you any kind of interesting payoff for it is kind of a bummer. Because <laughs> you're like, this is a great start. When they pay this off, this is going to be awesome. Nope. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> what, what about, um, okay, you know, Reggie, the ice cream man. When they sit, Reggie. Reggie's <laughs> the reason this movie's awesome. When they, uh, it bugs me a little bit. This is totally a nitpick, and I admit that it bugs me a little bit that he looks a tiny bit like Angus Scrim with his ha- hairline and stuff, um, especially later on in the second movie. But but anyway, that's neither. That's here cool. Nor there. They're kind of like the both ends of the spectrum, like the good versus <laughs> evil balding dude. I guess. Well, thanks for saying that because that makes me feel better about it. That used to bother me, but I love. He's that- totally at like they're totally trying to make Ash by the second movie. Which yeah, I love. yeah. I love yeah. Yeah. he's Ash, but he's just so interesting in this first film. Yeah, like the, like the orbs. He's this totally unique component to a film that you're just never going to see in your life. Like the right. ice cream truck driver who plays the guitar. <laughs> I love it. There's a leather jacket over his ice cream uniform and has got the craziest haircut of all time. And it's like the worst possible 
It's like a 1930s ice cream man outfit with the truck. <laughs> and the, the tuning fork thing is really cool. Yes. And, and I'll tell you why. It, it could have been, I mean, the, the delivery, Josh, like you're saying, the delivery is not great. The payoff Hold on, the setup, great. though. The se- as long as we're on Reggie, the setup oh, for sure, the tuning sure. fork thing is a little strange, though, right? Well, it's just out of nowhere. Like I mean, it's they, just a little on the nose, like, oh, this is going to be important later. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. You so, so you know, he, he runs up, sees Jody playing this sweet, like, Fender Strat. You know, I'm a guitar guy. So, <laughs> yeah. And he's got this amp there, and it's really cool. Anyway, you know, so he runs up, he's got his acoustic, he sits down, and they start playing. And it's just kind of a weird, disjointed scene that doesn't really belong. And it's like, oh, cool, jamming out. But back me, Matroid, it's a jam, right? I mean, I actually dig it, that song. It's a jam, and it's cool, and I, <laughs> I like the scene. But So Reggie screws it up. And then well, he, what, just... he sets the tuning fork on his guitar, which is yeah. like, oh, cool, okay. And then holds it there for, I don't know, a minute and a half. Like the shot, you know, kind of zooms in. It's like, this is a tuning fork. Remember what a tuning <laughs> fork looks like. You'll need to know this later. It's 10 seconds tops. Come Just on, to guys. be clear, I, it's awesome. I, I love it. Like, but it's weird and it's bad. <laughs> but it it's, totally is. It's I, awesome. and, I, and I love the idea that that factors in later because he gets this idea like tuning fork. If I put my hand on both these, the vibration or the calibration or the acceptance of a transmittal of frequencies and or bodies is going to stop. Like there's something about that that's like this intuitive old school humans instinctively know what to do kind of storytelling, which I think is so cool. Right. So for me, like the fact that he's like, uh, I'll just try this. That I love that. I just wanted more or I wanted it to feel like there was an organic process to it as opposed to this is a crazy room. Look how bright it is. What are those things doing? Touch them. Game over. It's just a little weird. <laughs> yeah, just give me any explanation about anything that's happening Josh, you're That'd killing me right now because you're the guy who likes upstream color, which I have. Upstream color makes ten times more sense than Phantasm. <laughs> I mean, not even—it's not even a contest. But what I'm every saying, every single thing that happens in Upstream color, color is explained within the course of the film. But what I'm saying to you is, you're the guy who who is accepting of you know you don't have to have everything explained. You know what it is, Jay. You know what it is. Mm, it's the belief it. that the filmmaker knows. How it fits together. Why does that bother you? Though? Uh, if That's I feel not... like I'm, because then I feel like I'm in capable hands. That someone's saying, like with David Lynch, for instance, I feel like yeah. he's clearly way smarter and way more out there than I am. But he knows exactly what he's doing. When I watch this film, I think this guy clearly has no idea what he's doing. They're making this up as they go along, and those are two <laughs> very different feelings to have while you're while you're watching something. I'm giving this a really hard time because I think it is ridiculous as a movie, but it's, I, I, I really enjoyed watching it. I think it's a lot of fun. It's just completely insane. And I can't believe that you're defending it as a serious piece of cinematic work. Oh, I <laughs> oh, come on. Come on. I am. I, I just, I, I can't, I'm really surprised. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm surprised at how hard you're being on it because uh, I admittedly, <laughs> It's it's you know it's kind of weird, sure. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't fully like. I mean, it's not um, a cohesive narrative. You could say that as well. I think that's a f- fair assessment of it. But that's uh, not my problem with it, though, 
do you understand that? Like, I don't mind. I don't mind if things are ambiguous, but I'm telling you, they don't. They're. It's just nonsensical. That's a different thing than being ambiguous, right? Nonsensical doesn't equate to bad, though. And no, I get I'm where you're coming right. from, but I yeah. do think that there you may have a failure to recognize why this is a serious and important film. It's jazz, basically, is what you're saying. Like, <laughs> this guy is so out there that he 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 knows how films are supposed to be made. He's just choosing to improvise so much that my small mind can't keep up with it. <laughs> well, no, it's not that we're calling you small minded by any means. No, but, I'm not. I'm just saying, but, I, I, but I'm not at all worried about you offending me about this film because I think you're wrong. So <laughs> no, but, but see, I think, I think you should be open to the fact that, well, maybe it's just a ride. Maybe it's just an experience and like, for example, Josh, yeah, and, I and I can't believe I'm the guy who's saying this. Of all people, I should be the last guy saying this. But, but are, do you dismiss like all experimental cinema, for example, like experimental filmmaking? It's different, Jay. That's my point. Like, I don't mind experiments. What I'm saying is these guys didn't know what they were doing. There's a difference between someone who's an artist saying, let's try something, you know, that's never been done before. But isn't there room for serendipity, like serendipitous filmmaking? Like, isn't it cannot that that can be a thing too, right? I already said I liked it. I'm just saying it's poorly constructed. Well, I can't, I can't argue. I enjoyed the experience. (laughs) If you're talking about going on a ride, I did that. I had a great time watching this movie. But if you're and I also, but to me, its closest cousin is Troll Two, and (laughs) it's as cohesive as Troll Two. Oh, I. Oh, well, it's a far greater accomplishment than Troll 2. Not, no way. <laughs> way. <laughs> like, the only thing that's better is the Sentinels. I mean, that's, and, the, and that's it. Like, everything else the about Troll 2 is just as good. Yeah, but they didn't make Troll Tall Man. Angus Scrim happens to be in the movie. But I'm talking about from a filmmaking. Well, his character, movie. though. I mean, it's Angus Scrim is in the movie, but it's his character. So his character here's this nothing. guy who's like 6'4 that wears. Uh, and by choice, wears a suit way too small for him to make him look even taller. The hair is so weird. Like, that's just enough to know that the guy's evil. Probably his normal hair. <laughs> right, which is so cool. <laughs> and he's just so scary. And when he says, boy. Yeah. And then there's always someone coming through a mirror or a window. Like, yeah, it's it's bizarre. It's not quite serendipitous. It's more like. We threw a lot of stuff at the wall, and way more stuff stuck than I thought would st- would stick. <laughs> but some it's of it fell. Not touching, but it, you know, but it kind of looks like polka dots. That's a good. That's a good <laughs> way to describe it. You know, another way I would describe this film, which I think is actually accurate for those who are old enough to remember this. This this almost looks like a live action video game. This would have made a great Atari twenty six hundred game. Definitely. Uh, couldn't you see this uh-huh. in, in that form? So when I watch it, I, I think of it fondly that way as well. Um, I like the colors in this film. I, I, I love the yellow blood, for example. Um, yucky. Yeah. So I mean, yucky. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, how often do you get yellow blood, right? I mean, it just doesn't happen that much. And I think that's cool too. But I, I just think there are a lot of things to love about this. What What is hilarious to me about this film, though, and I'm sure everybody's noticed this before, is that everything in this town seems to be, in Morningside, everything seems to be within walking distance. 
right? Like, like he, he, Jody drives away, like speeds off in the car to move that sign away from the thousand foot mine shaft. And then like, next thing you know, Michael like runs outside and it's like the mine shaft is like right next door, basically. Like, it's, it's hilarious to me. Like the geography in this film is really funny. Like the bar is really close to the cemetery, which is really close to Mike and Jody's house. Like, I just love that's it. That's something that you actually get a lot in stories where they're trying to tell more than they can handle in a short amount of time or they have a small budget. Mm. Um, you know, it happens a lot in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer TV show. And something funny about that is they actually become somewhat self-aware and they say, how many cemeteries are there in this city? Right. Oh, there's seven. <laughs> you know, it's like they kind of want to give you a little bit of that idea that they know that, yeah, every time you turn a corner, there's a cemetery. And the cemetery is just this far from Buffy's house. I felt that in this movie, too. And there's part of it that's like kind of that quaint film style where it's like, well, this guy's just out of high school or college. and He's making a movie with his parents' camera. That's what it felt like in that way. Mm-hmm. Which I love, but it is a little weird that His they didn't have to drive. Made some of the monsters for the film. Oh yeah, yeah. You you better said, than my mom's costume making. She right. made <laughs> terrible Ewok costume out of carpet. Very uncomfortable. Oh, uh, poor mom. What what about this? <laughs> this is something very interesting in this film to me. Um, I. I don't know off the top of my head. Maybe Dr. Shock knows. This is the kind of thing that he would know. I don't know in a horror cinema when was the first jump scare that had the blaring music accompanying it, you know, along with it. Oh, boy. But, and you can think about that for a second, Doc. But but in this film, at least, 1979, Phantasm, there is a jump scare. But the music blare... It, it isn't really a blare. It's just a very mild music cue. And I'm like, wow, did, were they not doing the blaring music accompanying jump scares in 1979? Uh, Are you I mean, talking about the woman in the house who never is seen in the movie before or after? It, no. <laughs> no that's, that, that's a prominent jump scare in the film when Reggie's walking through the house and all of a sudden there's a older African-American woman that startles him. <laughs> We have no idea who she is, and we never see her after that moment. Easily the most out of place and non-referred to like part of the movie. That's so something. weird. Yeah. yeah, it is saying something. But that's <laughs> one of those where like, if you cut that out, the movie becomes 30% more understandable instantly. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. I was actually referring – there's a scene where the tall man is outside the window, and he bursts in through the glass, and then you get this – <laughs> this really tiny music cue. It's like, <laughs> like <laughs> you know, usually it's like, bah! like really loud. Right. But it's just hilarious to me. It kind of makes me laugh. But anyways, okay guys, let's wrap up with our final thoughts of, and ratings on this film. I'll go first just cause I actually love this movie. I don't talk about it a lot. And to be honest with you, I don't watch it a lot. It's been many years since I watched this and I forgot I honestly forgot how much I um, appreciate this. I was just kind of discounting it. I, I didn't remember that I liked it as much. And maybe I just like it more than I used to. It sounds like Matt's always liked it. But anyway, this is an 8 out of 10 to me. And I admit that most of that probably is nostalgia. But I do believe that Phantasm, at least it seems to me, that it has inspired, it helped usher in 
the 80s, the 80s cinema, horror cinema that we love. And so I, I would, I love it for that. I love the music, especially the score to this film. I do think it really loses its way in the last 15 minutes. I can pick up on Josh's frustration, and maybe it's not the right word for it, Josh, but it does frustrate me in the last 15 minutes, the way like things, things that appeared to have happened all of a sudden have not happened or have they and like that gets a little frustrating to me and it it, yes it's a hokey film but i still love it eight out of ten this is a buy if you can find it i can't wait for them to get these out there so they're easily accessed by people what do you rate it dr shock um you're a little more generous than i would i it, it, again it, it is sort of a different experience um and i think if you're coming to the series who was it i think it was charlie O. he said on the comment board that this one's kind of a a, 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 a rough around the edges yeah um which i think is putting it so a little bit mildly <laughs> i i do recommend it I, I do think it's it's something that that everyone should see. I'll probably go with like a six point five though, um, but it it's still close to a buy just because of how iconic it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, I it's a definite rental, um, but I might even go with with a buy and say you know it's something you should probably should probably have just because how iconic it is. But it is, it's a 6.5 for me. Okay, 6.5. I'll put by it then. Okay, what do you say, Wolfman Josh? I think there's a lot to appreciate about this movie. I really appreciate the kind of independent spirit with which it was made. Um, I've only seen this one and a half times, so I'm not an expert on the film by any means. I watched it and then I started watching it again with a commentary, but wasn't able to complete it. But there were some really funny stories from the commentary about, for instance, like they um, had to, they just didn't know any better um, when they did the driving scenes to do a process or a poor man's process or safely do a rig. So they literally just rigged the camera to the car and had Mike, who's a kid, like, 12 year old or however, 14 year old kid drive around with a camera in front of his face. So he can't even see out the window (laughs) and they had him doing those stunts. They literally had Angus Scrim driving his car, doing some of the kind of stunt like moments. And he normally wears glasses, but he couldn't due to playing the character of the tall man. So he just like, couldn't see he's just driving without his glasses. <laughs> and I love that they were doing crazy stuff like that. Apparently someone gave them some explosives and they're just like, yeah, well, uh, let's throw in the car. Let's blow it up. <laughs> like, just like, cool. Um, so I love that. I love that they donated or spent so much of their time. Um, I do think it's been influential. I don't know. Like I feel this feels similar to the work of Sam Raimi to me Um, more the second film than the first film. And maybe the second film was influenced by Sam Raimi. So I'm not sure exactly how it plays in, but I I do like this director's future work after this film. Um, I think he hones his talents a little bit better going forward. And this is, you know, an interesting first feature. It's very watchable. Um, if, If not, you know, Totally crazy. But I, to me, the whole key to the film, oh, sorry, I was going to say in terms of influences, 
Um, you guys obviously know JJ Abrams um, named Captain Phasma after this film because of the tallness of the character and the chromeness of uh, <laughs> of its suit. Phasma uh, was uh, was a nod to this film, and JJ um, is overseeing a transfer of this film to Blu-ray currently. Nice. Um, so, I could hear about that. Yes, which is yeah. excellent. And these I films before K transfer, is it not? Maybe it is. Uh, we haven't talked about this yet. Um, but these films are pretty difficult to come by currently. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're all they're out of print, other than the second film, and so you can still buy them on Amazon, but they're like forty dollars if you want to get the DVD. Um, the VHS, if you're hardcore, are still around for like four to seven dollars each for these films. Um, or you can go to Don Castorelli's uh, site, and he has them also available on his website. Um, the the I think they're just called it's like phantasmfilms.com or phantasmmovies.com or something like that. Is it VHS? No, the the DVD. Oh, I was gonna say I I actually I you can get the VHS on Amazon I, used for like four bucks. I think I'm gonna do that. I'm not even joking. Yeah, it's worth doing. I think um, it's a really fun movie. Uh, to me, the whole key to the film that first of all, I hit. Let me just say, sorry, I hate the end when they say it's all a dream and that I hate that as a explanation to a film. I don't know. I tried to kind of look it up a little bit. I did a little bit of research into how long that trope has been around. And so I don't know if this is a well-worn trope at that time when you, you know, you wake up and it was all a dream or if this was an early example of that. But I thought, I do think that's interesting to think about, but I don't love it as a plot device. I think it's kind of lazy um, but I do think since just accepting that this is a dream, accepting that it's dreamlike, we get some really awesome scenes out of that. You mentioned, uh, Matt, the strolling down the walkway shot, you know, and he walk, he's walking so weird. Um, and then he stops and kind of like breathes in the coldness from the ice cream truck. Like that's such an amazing little two minutes of cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like that shots like that, that make the movie worth watching. But I think the key to the whole film is in that weird fortune teller scene, actually. And he sticks his hand in this box, Mike, and then he can't get it out. And it's the old, you know, uh, finger cuffs <laughs> trick, basically like the harder you pull, the harder it is to get out. And so she's telling him, don't be afraid. You've got to relax. Don't be afraid. The young girl who, by the way, is an awful actress. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> But as soon as Mike is able to stop being scared, he's able to remove his hand. And she says in her horrible delivery, it was simply a reflection. Fear is the danger. That's what my grandmother wants you to learn. It was all in your mind. And that's kind of like the whole point of the whole film, I guess, is like his fear is what's holding him back. And this is all just a reflection of his own fear, maybe about his parents' death, maybe about his brother leaving and once he's able to kind of let go of that fear, he can overcome them. And so I like, <laughs> I like that as a way to kind of tie up the film. Although that scene doesn't make any sense. In it's inclusion. Little PS on that, Josh. The funniest thing about that scene, the dumbest, like most hilarious thing is when the, the grandmother has like stone cold face the whole time. And then as soon as the kid leaves, she cracks up. It totally ruins her mystique. But anyway, or it makes it, Right, that scared right. the crap out of me. <laughs> it was scary. That seriously scared me. Well done, Metroid. That was good. 
Um, so anyway, yeah, I give this movie a 4.5 in terms of the filmmaking quality, but I think it's worth a buy. I would say purchase it if you are someone who loves, you know, if you're a collector, it's a buy it for collectors. If you're someone who thinks I want to own all the iconic films, you know, all the iconic horror films, this is absolutely one to buy in that case. Um, otherwise it's maybe a rental but it, it's a fun watch and it's right up there to me with troll two. You can sit down with some friends and just laugh at how ridiculous the movie is and you'll have a good time. <laughs> I love that you said buy it for collectors. That makes me happy, Josh. Okay. Matroid bring us home. Okay. Well, so I, I want to do a very non bias or unbiased uh, review here if I can, or, or recommendation, I guess really. Um, I think that the movie has enough merit that it's worth watching for sure. Uh, it does kind of have a place in history, and I think it it has influenced enough people. I mean, if it influenced J.J. Abrams enough for him to include it in Star Wars in any reference whatsoever, that's pretty considerable because he's not going to put just anything into that movie. So for me, that's kind of the perfect analogy for how this movie seeps into a person's life and become something that even though it's it's not spectacular it's not a huge achievement it is something that kind of sits and rests within us and i think it's a little weird in that way but i also think that it's it's something that we can throw in and watch with friends or jason i'm kind of with you i could watch it just in the background have in the background every night like it's that kind of movie to me mm-hmm. and there are elements of it that are truly truly horrific and very frightening and and more weird frightening than outright scary you know you're not running from a wolf you're not run or like a werewolf you're not running from a vampire you're not uh, being chased by michael myers you're no matter what the tall man is there you can't evade him you can't evade the oddities that come with this movie and it's it's just strange so i can't say in in all honesty, that I think it's a wonderful movie for everyone. So I have to rate it a 6.5. And I think it's definitely a must-watch. Now, I personally think it's a buy for anyone who likes 80s movies, and I would rate it like a 9 because of how I feel about it. But that's not right. So 6.5, and I think you got to uh, definitely have to see it. It's high priority. So you're giving that 6.5 and a must-see um, rental then? So... Okay. Yeah, stream it, rent it, however you can find it. I mean, it is it is really hard to find these movies. I'm just fortunate enough to have them already. Yeah, well, that's great. When that J.J. Abrams release comes out, I bet it's going to be a, a package worth buying. I'm sure there'll be some awesome features yeah. and stuff like that. Heck yeah. Definitely. But the DVD that's on Amazon now that is probably like $34 or something, it's got a great commentary. Cool. But, but the transfer is not good. Not great. It's really not. I mean, the VHS looks just as good. And it feels good putting a VHS tape in and then like pushing it like into the VCR and hearing the sounds. That's like kind of how this movie is. It feels like a VHS tape sounds when you're putting it into a VCR. That's why I'm going to buy the VHS version of this, because I think honestly, maybe that's how it should be viewed. I mean, I'm excited about the Blu-ray and stuff. And um, my friend Carl, Movie Podcast Weekly, Help me get my Blu-ray player hooked up finally. <laughs> like I'm only 10 years late to the party. But um, <laughs> I don't care. I, I I still want Phantasm on VHS. Can't wait. All right. And at this point in episode 82 of Horror Movie Podcast, we're going to move into our feature review. 
of Phantasm 2. Phantasm. The delusion of a disordered mind. A phantom. A spirit. A ghost. For ten years, the secret of Paragord Cemetery has remained a mystery. Now, three innocent people are about to discover the ultimate evil. You think that when you die, you go to heaven. You come to us. All right, Phantasm 2. This movie came out in 1988. Director and uh, writer, same Don Coscarelli. And it stars James LaGrosse, Reggie Bannister, Angus Scrimm as the tall man. Uh, the movie basically picks up years later. Mike has been in a psychiatric ward for the uh, mentally insane due to his delusions from the first movie. And uh, he gets out with the help of... Uh, a psychic woman named Liz or a psychic girl named Liz that he meets. Uh, they team up with Reggie from the first film and decide that it is time to figure out the tall man's plan and try to stop him. So it, it's pretty standard fare as far as uh, revenge story goes. In some case, they're just trying to get back at the tall man for everything he did in the first one. They're trying to stop him from taking over cities and... I don't know, converting dead people and living people into these little dwarves. <laughs> it, it, this one is definitely not as uh, ambiguous and, and atmospheric and, and dreamlike as the first one, but it is certainly certainly still a phantasm movie. It's strange and it's weird. And, and we get a new actor playing Mike, James LaGrosse, who a lot of people know. He's been in a lot of stuff. Um, yep. And I actually like him way better than... than uh, I think Sam. it's Michael Baldwin is the actor, if I'm not correct, if I'm not mistaken, from the first one. Mm. Yeah, who reprises the roles in three and four. So this is the only movie of the Phantasm four and soon to come out fifth movie that doesn't have the original cast, which I think is really kind of a cool thing and a, and a feat in its you know in itself. But um, James LeGros is way way more convincing and a better actor. And uh, and I have to say, quite handsome. Yeah, I mean scary. that's a good-looking dude. I'm just saying. I mean, I'm happily married and all that, but um, he's a good-looking guy. If you guy. weren't, if yeah. you weren't, <laughs> yeah. If, uh, he's a guy that I think I like, like a Brad Pitt, where he's like he could be a male model, but he's really played against that type for most of his career. Like he intentionally uglies himself up for a lot of his roles, which I like. He's a weird dude. Like he's he's full on strange. I forget Every, everything. Everything I've like read about him and. And seeing him in, it's like he's just legitimately a strange man, which I think is great. <laughs> he's he's Rick in Drugstore Cowboy and Roach in Point Break, for people who don't know him right. by name. But and I he's wrote, Phoebe's way creepy date and friends. <laughs> <laughs> and I, he's also the creepy car salesman at the start of the Psycho remake, which I really enjoy. Yeah, great in that. But yeah, so this movie is is it's hard for me not to just gush over this movie. I've got my reasons, well, but really. Do it. I mean, why? So I. That's what I want to know. I mean, I like it too, of course. But there are people like you, and I wanted to mention like Boss Butcher, our friend that we talked about as well. 
He, when we did our best horror movies of the 80s and 90s, if I'm not mistaken, Dr. Shock, I believe Boss Butcher chose this. Of course, he chose it for his 1988 pick, but then he chose uh-huh. it for the his favorite horror movie of the 80s. Oh, interesting. I don't remember. You You could very well be right. I, yeah, I he, he did. And he was... He he wasn't he wasn't very apologetic about it. He he was like laughing and he's like, I don't care. I love it. I just love it. So there are people like you, Metroid, who have this insane love for this film. So I want to hear about why you love it so much. Sure. Well, and, and this is my favorite horror movie of the eighties. Oh. I don't think it's it's not the best one, but it's my favorite one. So if that it, makes sense. Oh, okay. So it's kind of your pick too, yeah, because it sounded like those boss's favorite it is and for listeners that uh, may come over to the sci-fi podcast and there's a bunch of you thank you very much for doing so um and certainly co-host station who just happens to be my lovely wife these people can all attest to my uh super annoying quality of telling stories to for every reason whatsoever or no reason whatsoever and I feel like every single explanation in life deserves a story. I think it's completely ridiculous. I don't know why I do it, but I do. So I'm not going to let you all down. Um, <laughs> yeah. When I was when I was young, I think I was it was probably just a shade older than 11 or 12, maybe. So this was this movie is still pretty new. It was on HBO, and I was at a friend's house who had cable, which was just the coolest treat ever. And his whole family was gone, so it's the two of us late at night on like a Saturday, and. Uh, and we're just flipping through channels, and I think legitimately looking for something like uh, Little Mermaid or something. I don't, you know, something that he could watch. He was a couple of years younger, or you know, ET, something very easy to watch. And we stumble across this movie that instantly draws me in as something I know I probably shouldn't be watching, which made it really appealing. <laughs> and uh, you know, and it kind of had that texture that some movies have, where you're instantly gravitating towards it and you kind of simultaneously don't want to watch and can't stop watching at the same time. I think the, the uh, phrase is like, you can't pull yourself away from watching a train wreck kind of thing. That's not not the phrase, but that's the gist of it. Um, Mm -hmm. And this movie very much had that going for it for me and being impressionable, having by this time in my life been terrified a number of times by the alien movies and yet super in love with them. I, I was learning to really appreciate that feeling of being scared. Horror movie fans can certainly attest to the the odd joy of being scared, or the the feeling of watching a scary movie. How it there's nothing quite like it, which is why Halloween is such a wonderful time of year. I think so. This for me kind of became this draw, and so I'm watching this movie. And we were watching for a while, and, and and he can't watch, so he's running out of the room, and I'm watching it alone, and this is not acceptable because I'm getting pretty scared. So we're changing the channel, but I keep going back and forth. And then we stop when I see these spheres, and I'm like, okay, this is getting really weird. And and I hadn't seen Evil Dead uh, 2 at the time. If I had, I probably would have been like, oh, this must be related because it's very similar. But regardless of all that uh, – you know, the spheres are coming down and the gold one makes an appearance and and slams into the guy's hand and he cuts off his hand with an axe. Clearly a Sam, Sam Raimi nod there. Uh, it flies up his back, spins around. And by this time, I'm so horrified and like excited that I'm just, I, I'm giddy and it's the best. And two or three years pass, maybe not quite that long, but close to that. And I have no idea what I've seen. You know, this is in the days where you couldn't look it up online. Uh, I had, you know, I had no way of finding out what this is. And, and 
members listening or listeners certainly would of a certain age are going to understand that when it's like back in the day before the internet, you just, you watched a movie on cable or whatever. And you're like, whatever that was, I can't wait to see it again. And you may never see it again or never learn the name of it or whatever. So yeah, it, it was so good. And when I finally did find it, it was one of those times where I like immediately went out and rented it and just found myself in love with it in a way that kind of transcends logic. So for me, the movie I, I can throw any technical aspects out, any stuff that Josh may may rightfully even nitpick. Uh, that's all out the window for me. It's like this movie could be t- 10 times worse, and I still love it so much because of the way I felt the first time I watched it. It's, it's the, the power of television, the power of, of cinema, when we can be that moved by something upon a single viewing. And I didn't even catch the whole movie at that. I love this phenomenon that you're describing because it's it's so true, Matroid. I think a lot of us, I mean, probably everybody has movies like that where you can't really defend it. You know, from a critical standpoint, you're like, well, I can't tell you why it's great, but it's great to me and I just love it. Yeah, there's a there's a certain way that that a film can make you feel or take you back to a place. It's just like I've heard people describe this with songs on the radio. It's like every time I hear that song, it reminds me of that time in my life and it was a happy time. So I love that song and it can um, bring it back like right away. I mean, that's an actual um, conditioning, but do you have that experience too, Dr. Shock? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and especially with, I mean, you know, Flash Gordon is a movie. That's one. I mean, I have a distinct memory of that was back in the days when you would just spend all day outside in the summer. You know, you would go outside at, at eight o'clock in the morning and you'd come back in at five o'clock at night when it was dinner time. Um, and I remember coming back in at five o'clock. Uh, it was before my father came home because he took over the TV. And I remember turning on cable and seeing Flash Gordon for the first time ever. And looking at it, even at that young age, knowing it was kind of goofy, um, but still loving it. Mm hmm. Uh, horror wise. Yeah. I, I have that with a movie that it, it's one I have, I really can't defend, but I, I have, a, uh, it's, it's just always going to be special to me. And it's hello, Mary Lou prom night too. Oh yeah. I remember that. I love that movie. <laughs> I love yeah, that movie. I, 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 I saw that on cable and I watched it again. I'm like, Whoa, I, you know, it's, it's, it's not a great movie, but I, I love it. I, I can, I, I love watching it. Um, now, Dave, so I definitely know where Matroid is coming from. Let me ask you, do you feel like that is your movie? What's that? The, the like, Hello, Mary Lou? Right. Oh, the, yeah. The reason, the reason I ask is because I think that's part of the phenomenon is we take this odd ownership over it. It becomes very personal. Yeah. For me, this movie is mm-hmm. my movie. I showed my friends this movie. I was the one that told everybody about it. I, it may as well have been made for me and no one else. And and I, no one knew what it was until I was well into my late teens, early 20s. So for me, it really did belong to me, which I think is another reason why it's so special to me. So, uh, right. and I got friends, Josh and I have this kind of crew we used to hang out with some band members and whatnot. And a lot of us, because of this movie, because of my experience with this, got into the Phantasm movies. And our friend Jeremy in particular, every chance we got, we would rent the Phantasm movies and then a new one would come out and we'd run down to the Hollywood video to, to pick up a copy. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was that important to us, you know? Yes. You know, 
I, oh, yeah. I've mentioned feeling kind of outside the horror community before, mainly because my formative years were during the 90s when horror sucked. And also not really being a fan of some of the big names in horror, like Freddy, Chucky, and Phantasm is one of those things that like I just was never into it. And I remember I have very vivid memories of being at our drummer's house. Um, and, you know, we'd have band practice or whatever in his basement, and then everybody would go be hanging out on the couches watching Monty Python or something. And I just remember they were always putting in Phantasm. And I would just see bits and pieces of him like, this sucks so bad. Why are you guys watching this? <laughs> because it was so great. <laughs> yeah, and it's just weird. Like, I never I never gave it a chance, you know. And, um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I was really pleased upon the viewing. Exp- I was really pleased with the ex- viewing experience that I had because I had really low expectations. Yeah, and I think I think that we could all admit – Maybe there are just movies. Sometimes we don't get it, like, quote unquote, get it, like why it appeals to other people, but doesn't appeal to us. And I have that happen all the time, actually. But, but Matroid, my movie, you didn't ask, but one of the movies that I Jason, feel... Jason, what's your movie? <laughs> okay, my movie that I feel like is mine <laughs> is from this same year, 1988, and it's Killer Clowns from Outer Space. That's, <laughs> that's a terrible movie that I absolutely love. But I get it. Anyways, <laughs> sidetrack. Nice. Very cool. All right. So, so, um, Dr. Shock, what, what are your thoughts on Phantasm 2? I actually really like this movie too. Uh, I, I, I might probably, I like it a little bit more than the first one, actually. Um, there are, there are scenes about, again, there's not, there are scenes that don't make a lot of sense. There is a supposed sex scene with pants on where you get the feeling that they're really going at it, and then they pull back and you say, hey, wait, she's still wearing her pants. Is um, that not how it's done? <laughs> I'm just asking for a friend. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and there are there are just you know things about it. Like they, they're, in that same scene, there, um, there's a, a grenade goes off. They come running down. There's a huge hole in the wall now. And they said, "Oh, they must have had a cat or dog or something." Um, <laughs> there's just there are things like that about it, but yet there's a sense of 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 this one has a sense of fun about it. That I think that that it's hard to ignore, and and even some of the scenes, uh, this one has scenes in it that I think are even scarier than in the first movie. To be honest with you, oh um, yeah, you know with. Uh, the, the the tall man gets gets is a little more prominent in this film. Uh, the spheres are, are are slightly more prominent in this film. Uh, and there's one scene I always remember is is them walking through a dug up graveyard, and you're watching them because you realize that wow, there's just like not that much, not too many plots of land for them to actually be walking on, as they were going up to a house. And I always I always something about that scene always stuck with me. And I thought it was cool, you know, how they're, they're even looking down to make sure that they're still on ground yeah. because there's all these empty graves all over the place. Yeah. And just the way that it was shot, I, I really enjoyed that. So there are definitely things about this that I that I liked, I liked better than the first one. Uh, again, I don't want to take too much away from the first one because it has its place and I, I think it deserves it. But 
this one I think was a little more accessible. Accessible. Um, you know, for somebody, I, and it, well, you don't want anybody to start at the second movie. Um, and I definitely agree about about uh, James LaGrosse too, uh, as, as far as playing the uh, playing the lead. Mm-hmm. I think he was definitely much better. Well, it sounds like um, most of us here saw the second one first, right? I mean, before even seeing the first one, that, that was think... that was my experience. Yes. So people our age in thirties and forties probably. Maybe that's how they experienced it. But anyways, uh, Wolfman Josh, what do you say about Phantasm 2? I, I don't remember which Phantasm movies they were watching back in the day, but in terms of my viewing experience now, I did watch them in order because I'd never actually seen them. So, I, of course, I chose the first one first. Um, and I think this is a huge improvement. Um, this is a totally inexact comparison and pretty lazy, but I'm just going to say it anyway. It's hard to not say Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2 is a comparison to Phantasm, Phantasm 2 for me. The tone is a lot lighter. Um, the kills are a little more extreme. They've got a little more money to play with, and it doesn't feel quite as much of of an art film this time around. Um, that was by design. You know, This was a studio film. And as I mentioned before, um, you know, uh, Universal released this film. And what had happened, I guess, uh, my understanding just from the commentary is that uh, the head of Universal um, was replaced. And the new guy who came in was a big horror fan. He was a big horror guy. And he wanted Universal to have their own horror franchise. And he was a fan of the first film. So he said, great, let's make Phantasm our franchise. And that'll be our thing. And unfortunately for them, Phantasm 2 was technically a failure at the box office um, compared to the first film. You know, the first film made for very little, made a huge amount. This one made for a lot more. It was made for $3 million and didn't do too great um, theatrically. But, you know, that $3 million was well spent, I think. And they did a lot of really cool stuff with this movie. I guess the studio also told them no dream sequences and we don't want it to be as ambiguous but um, but still, I mean, I think they did some really cool stuff. It, it has that kind of A-team uh, Evil Dead <laughs> feel to it. I really like the Reggie character to me in this film jumps up from like weird secondary character that's interesting but might be a pedophile in the first movie. Oh, that's exactly. You know, I, I was I was sort of I wanted to mention that there was something that last scene in that first movie and I don't yeah, think yeah. back yeah, but Yeah, it's weird. You're, it's weird. You're looking at it and you're like, "Wait a second, was was Reggie is is Reggie making a pass? What what is going on is here?" Is he going to kiss this boy? <laughs> yeah. yeah. He is an ice cream man, guys. Yeah. So that made it even creepier, <laughs> right? Uh, there was there was something about that last scene where you're looking and saying, "He's just a little too intimate here." Mm. But in this movie, he is a horn dog hero. I mean, he is. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it only gets worse with the sequels too. <laughs> <laughs> I love him in this movie. I haven't seen the sequels yet because you know I'm not a fan. Watching them in order, but um, really excited about the turn that Reggie took in this movie, and just think he's awesome. He does some weird. He makes some weird choices, like he makes this four bar- barreled shotgun that's freaking amazing. It is. It's awesome. Coolest it no gun sense. ever. <laughs> but then he uses it once, and he's like, "Meh." Throws it on the ground. Like I couldn't. I couldn't believe. I even as, when I first saw this, I'm like, "What are you doing? Throwing that away?" Like all your shotgun <laughs> shells, they're just there on the floor. Pick them up, right? Dude. But he doesn't do it. Mm. It's heavy. Um, 
Yeah, <laughs> right. It, it's a fantastic. <laughs> I, I love that you said it, the A team, Josh, because I wrote that in my notes as I nice. was watching this again. I wrote this is very A team like, and and I I enjoy Reggie as I enjoy his character, and like you said, the tone is more fun. And and Josh, I think you nailed it. Your description of that was really good. Although, just for the record. I personally prefer the first Evil, Evil Dead, Dead over Evil Dead 2. But but anyway, I just want to put that out there. But other than that, Josh, everything you said I think is right on target. However, I yeah, this is a better movie. I actually prefer it overall over the first one. But I do, it, it's, it's a little bothersome to me on some level that Reggie like turns into an action star in this. What? Um, I mean, That's the part. No. I, I, I know a lot of people like that, but to me, it's like, I mean, honestly, if you look at the things he's capable of doing in this movie, like he does a lot of like full blown action hero stuff in this. And I'm like, uh, I like it. I like it better when, you know they're they're fumbling and struggling through, and it's a little more believable. You, you like yeah. it? You like it better when he's selling ice cream and fondling young boys? <laughs> <laughs> I never well, said that, sir. <laughs> there's reasoning for it, though. I mean, consider when this movie's made, right? So, 1988, you've got stuff like John McClane, right? Mm-hmm. You've got action heroes are kind yeah. of the thing. You've got Stallone, right. Schwarzenegger, Van Damme, right? All these guys coming up on the scene or defining the scene as it were. And while this movie is not even remotely tied to any of those, as far as genre or even style, that's what people kind of expected out of a leading man. Mm-hmm. Right. In and just also, about anything. there's a, I mean, you guys probably noticed that direct reference to Sam Raimi when um, the guy's cremated and he's yeah. put the remains into the bag. It just says Sam Raimi on the, Right, right. <laughs> yeah, there's also Alex Murphy, which I don't know if it's intentional or not, but that's RoboCop. For RoboCop, what it's worth. right? Um, right. Yes. On right. the grave, I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, that was yeah. pretty cool. And and you know, I I really pick up a a real Terminator flavor to this too, big time. I, now I I realize, guys, I realize that that T two Judgment Day. Well, it came out in 91, so this preceded that. But, however, you know how in, and this is very mild spoilers for the first Terminator movie, 1984, um, you know how in the end of Terminator, like the very last moments, you've got Sarah Connor kind of looking into the future, you know, and the clouds are coming, and it's really like ominous. Well, that that mood of preparing for the future and the battle ahead, that that really pervades this this film because they're going after the tall man and stuff. And I actually really like that tone, that that feeling, the the mood that this puts me in as I watch it. Like, oh, a battle is coming. They're going after him, and uh, that really excites me. Yeah, and it's definitely. Yeah. I agree. And there's also the element of we're not all coming back. Right. Like, now, Jay, would that make them I more loved. victors than victims? Mm, yeah, let's see. They're if fighters. Yeah, they do. He does. <laughs> he does have a fighter spirit in this. You know, sure. you know, only Reggie does, though. Really, I mean, Mike's whole thing is we gotta, we gotta do this. We have to save this girl. But it's like, let's get in and get out. I don't want to go through this. He's not a fighter unless he's mm. like trapped in a corner, and even then, he'd rather hide from a I don't terrifying. Know, it looks pretty cool when he's walking around with his blowtorches. 
Yeah, but, but that's also because he can't be unarmed. And it's because he's so good looking. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say, I was, I, I was always really impressed with Mike that, that, yeah, they've had this sort of mental con- connection, but the first time he sees her, he's making out with her. And the first time he sees her, he says, I love you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. But they've been psychically bonded for a long time, and you don't need to have that explained because it's real. <laughs> um, we also haven't mentioned that Greg Nicotero and Robert Kurtzman are on board for this film and the right. gore takes a huge step up um, as mm-hmm. good as the first sphere Sentinel attack was in the first movie. This one is insane. The one that with the right. gold, was it the gold sphere in this one yeah. where it goes mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah. yeah, that is my all time scariest moment from a horror movie. Really? Without yeah. a doubt that scene it, it it hits me on such a level that I can't explain. For yeah. one, when it's like when the thing is looking for them, it has that laser and shoots the mouse. It had a very like early uh, like remember the TV show War of the Worlds in like the early eighties. I think it was I totally do. Oh, Super yeah. scary tonally. It was kind of grimy and scary. It felt like that to me, which I thought was cool. But mm-hmm. when it hit, you know, when it hits the guy and then it starts going up his back. And it's like, that's terrifying. And you hear it drilling and you know what's going on. And then he stops and he's still alive and he's kind of looking around and then it keeps going and it stops again. And then it lifts him up into the air and they turn him around and it's like sticking out of his face. That's, there is something about that that is unparalleled partially because I've never seen anything else like it. Yeah. Now it really is horrifying. The spheres in this film have like Terminator vision or predator vision, basically. Um, did they have yeah, that in I the first movie? I can't remember. No. No. Okay. And and I think no. it was an attempt to kind of give people an idea that they are somewhat sentient. Yes. Right. Yeah. That's what right. I think too. Which, and also to rip off Predator and Terminator. Right, sure. Exactly. Predator <laughs> sure. 1986, Terminator 1984. Yes. Right. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it is what it is. I don't know that it works. I don't know. It's a huge detractor, but I don't love that. It makes more sense as you watch the other movies why they would, and obviously you can't go backwards and say, well, he knew because he probably didn't know it would be coming up in the next movies, but (laughs) it it does make sense from a standpoint of, Oh, okay. I see why they're doing that, which we'll talk about on our show later on. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And just to to stick with the orbs, the spheres. I mean, I, I love the concept of, you know, if it's embedded in flesh, then it's kind of at rest. That's you really know? cool. Yeah, I'm like, really? I'm like, I am so disturbed by that right now because it reminds me a little bit of like, um, it's like the nature of a wood tick, you know, a tick that in the woods that like, you know, burrow, it gets into your skin, it sucks your blood. But if it's if it's on a host and it's already like dug in like a tick, then you don't have to worry about it like jumping over to you. And no, it, just Lyme disease. Yeah, Lyme disease. <laughs> that's all. But I mean, it's it's really interesting. So if Matt had a tick on him and I were next to Matt, I wouldn't be worried about that tick. So yeah. it, it, it reminds me of that. I have ticks, but that's only because I'm a little Tourette's-y. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> what about... You know what I love about this movie? I love that there's like this chainsaw battle in it. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. That's awesome, right? And and there again, you know, I'm wondering, okay, well, maybe that was some influence from Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, right? Mm-hmm. It's also yeah. Super Sam Raimi too. Just the tone. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Shooting and, style for sure. 
Yeah, and, and then and then how you know the one guy's like, oh, that's you know, it's also kind of even though this is not this is where it came from at all, but it's like, oh, that's an impressive. Your Schwartz is as big as mine, kind of thing. But it's like, <laughs> yeah. no, not even close. Check this out, and he gets out like you know the the like redwoods version yeah. of that's a chainsaw. not a knife. Yeah, yeah, that's not a knife. That's a chainsaw. Right. Another thing you know, about this movie that always I, kind of stuck with me is they they enter that other dimension, you mm-hmm. know, through those uh, silver poles. Yeah, exactly those poles, which I thought was cool. I really did. I thought that was that was pretty interesting the way that they had put that together. Um, and then this 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 thing is coming at them. Um, and then but then when they got out, what did it do? Did it go back in that barrel? Nobody knows. Which wait, when <laughs> what came out? The 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 uh, the, uh, the little the I guess the dwarf without the cloak. No, no, I don't even want to think about that thing. That's the worst. Like <laughs> I feel really bad for the poor little guy that had to wear that because he probably and I think it was children. At least in the first one, children were the were the yeah. actors they used for that. But in this one, it may have been little people. I'm not sure. But whoever that person was definitely went on to do questionable things in their life because that is a horrible, <laughs> horrible situation to be in. And that feels so real. Like the sound effects, by, by the way, the, the way they, the way they uh, use the, the voicing is so weird and it's got this reverse gate on it. It's for those of you who don't know what that is. It's a studio reference. Whenever you hear a cymbal on a drum that sounds like it's going backwards, it's because it is like the, and that's kind of, adapted to these voices and there's a little bit of a delay really cool i mean super easy technique and yet really effective to kind of describe or to uh help enhance this alien landscape but how right. yucky is it that this bright red everything nothing like it's just super inhospitable and then this oh, thing's like mars slow. you know you think you think it's like the, the the surface of mars or something yeah if the sky was made out of blood right so right. it's right. even worse <laughs> And then you've got this thing that's slowly crawling towards him. It's naked and wrinkly and weird. <laughs> yes. It doesn't have a facial expression other than to say, like, you know, this is what I'm here for. I'm going to get Yeah, it, it's not necessarily um, – it, 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 what I think what it is is what makes it so unsettling is it's, it's not necessarily evil. It's not necessarily, like, angry and coming at them for any reason. Right. It's just moving very slowly. And and methodically, and it's it's going to get there. You know, it's going to get there eventually. It's not getting there in in anger. It's not getting there to to doing things specifically. But once it gets there, probably something very bad is going to happen. And that's the thing. You don't know what, but leaving that to the imagination is really effective because less can be more. And I don't like to think about it because I will create something that'll not let me sleep. Whatever that thing did, if I saw that in real life, I would probably just start like tearing at my jugular to just end the thing because that was right. the worst. Right. I uh, will say for me, like going back to my lazy Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2 comparison, this is another example of just like with now there's two Sentinels. The idea to me with this scene is like it's basically the exact same scene from the first movie. There's a few more bells and whistles, but we don't learn anything additional about the death dimension. You know, like they're right. just not another we there, we really know nothing more about this world than we knew in the first movie other than it just solidified a few of the abstract ideas from the first film it doesn't really add anything <laughs> and it gives it gives us a sense that it's that's a crucial element 
which is that much more bizarre that we don't learn anything from it because <laughs> right. clearly, clearly it's important. It's the like, you know, in Lord of the Rings, you've got like Sauron's got the, he's got uh, Mordor, you know, and, and you've got the Death Star in Star Wars. Right. We right. always know that the villain's lair <laughs> is a very crucial and, and important component or or where the villain comes from, right? right? So for this, it's like, oh, that's where he comes from? And you kind of get nervous, but then you don't have any reason to be extra nervous because we don't get anything out of it. <laughs> right. Like in some ways, it's just the MacGuffin. It's just driving the plot. Like this is the reason our heroes are on an adventure. But like at the same time, give us a little bit more to be immersed in the world, you know, a step further. If we're going to have a second movie. That's Josh, you're right. I mean, that's true. I have to concede that what you're saying is accurate. But I do want, <laughs> as as an ever defender of these movies for some reason, um, <laughs> like, I do. I like. I just like them. I really do. But like, one thing that's nice about this is here we have a sequel that gives us um, more of what we liked from the first film, except it does it better and it does a little bit bigger. And so, because it answers on those couple of different fronts. Where it, you know, it's the same but different, and it does it a little bit improved. I still feel like this film works, even though it doesn't really progress. That's well, Evil Dead the, too. It's kind of a reboot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's fair for sure. Yeah, kind of in the same way that like uh, that the thing was right. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. There's that similarity of is it is it a remake? Is it a sequel? I I feel like it's more of a sequel than a remake, definitely. But you could argue that you don't even need to see the first one, and this could be a somewhat complete story for you. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. I, I will say this, though. Um, so the, the main girl, in the, not Liz, I actually really was kind of bummed out that she was underused, and then we don't get much more of her. But uh, Reggie's love interest. Right. So She's awesome. She's wanna, great. Yeah. I want to like, meet her. and Super exciting and just like <laughs> fun and kind of a weird – like you know, troubled in a good way for a movie like this. But when she starts twirling her hair at the end, like that is the instant, like when that happens, yeah. you see her start to pull her scalp yeah. off. I just find myself going, no, no, yeah. no. Right. You know, just like I'm yes. trying to get out of this box that I'm suddenly trapped in Yeah, because it's so horrible. And it's those kind of things that, that are kind of sporadically tossed through these movies that keep it interesting. Like there's not too much of a lull ever before we get some kind of, you know, weird explosion that's unexplained, um, yeah. someone doing something horrible to a body, yellow goo coming from something. Like, there's always these things. And that can be a really tedious way to, to sift through a movie, you know? Yeah. It, it, can, right. it can smack of an unexperienced filmmaker. But I think in this, it's done intentionally to be like, okay, now that you're getting comfortable, let's, let's make sure you never get too comfortable and even towards the end, you get that in a really heavy dose. You yeah. know not everything is okay, but you kind of feel like maybe it is. And then they're like, no, it's not okay. It's way worse than okay. It's You're about to see this <laughs> this fairly attractive girl who you kind of had a thing for early, early on pull part of her head off while smiling and then laughing. And she's the one driving the car, by the way. <laughs> yeah. And the weird thing about alchemy is like, just to go back to her for a second – she looks so modern to me. And again, this is my first time really watching the movie, but she just doesn't seem to fit in the film. Like they all feel so of the time period. And she just feels like, I don't know. <laughs> That's true. I agree. It's, yeah. It's really weird. Yeah. But, and, and then like, for me, one of the big problems with the film is Reggie's 
And we don't know the makeup of his family. Perhaps the elderly African-American woman was his wife from the first film. We no, don't no, know no. We, we know a little bit. Okay. Well, anyways. He was, he was married and had a daughter, and they were taken by the tall man. Okay. So his house explodes at the beginning of this film. Family's dead. And then he's hooking up with alchemy, like, what? Like, a day later? Two days later? <laughs> yeah, time has no meaning in these movies. I've even searched for a timeline online, and the best I found was pretty good. It kind of gave it, like... Two years in between uh, the beginning of the movie and the end, or you know, really? and cer- certainly we have a, like a ten-year gap between the two movies. Yeah, but or, it's, or like an eight-year gap, or whatever. But yeah, eight years. But yeah. this what? movie really between oh, the because one and two. of the one yeah, I see what you're saying. Oh, so so his yeah. family blows up. Yeah, but still, his family blows up right before he starts hooking up with Alchemy, though, right? Well, I think the intention is to say that it's actually some time that has They've passed. been on the road for a long time. Right. In which he even says, you know, it's lonely out there, Mike. Yeah, I, mean, I, I need to, you know, bone someone. Man's got needs. That's a creep. <laughs> He's got needs, right. you know? That's yeah. understandable. I always found that peeing scene to be weird. But, you know, I think one of the things that is so interesting about these movies. So, um, Dave, you're, you're way back east in – the land of Rocky, which is awesome, right? I yeah. love that. I love it back there. Mm-hmm. We are out here where people are like, oh, Mormons and desert and snow. They're not wrong, <laughs> but there's a lot more to it. And these movies kind of careen the the unexplored in horror movies. They start off in an Oregon. I think it starts off in Oregon or somewhere around there. And by the time we're in this movie, we're in the middle of Idaho. Like, it's really oh. kind of cool. And and yeah. I get the feeling that it's post-apocalyptic, which we haven't really touched on. But uh, towns like that it, nowadays, especially with the internet, it'd be like, what are you talking about that, you know, uh, Burley, Idaho is missing? Right. I mean, you can't, you can't tell me that, like, Johnsonville, Mississippi is just gone. That doesn't make any sense. Where are all the people? I've Back- driven from eastern Oregon through Idaho to Utah, and I can tell you there's not much going on. No, I know. Out of that drive. <laughs> I've made that several times. You know, I've toured that with a band, and it's it's a horrible, horrible existence to have to drive that. Sorry for anyone that lives up there, but it's true. You live in the crap zone, and it's it just sucks. It's like when you get out into Wyoming, and you're like, this is what I have to look forward to for like 30 hours of driving. But to be fair, <laughs> these cities, it says like population 1,000 or 995 or whatever. Like right. if a 1,000 right. people went missing, you're telling me that that's not going to have a ramification, let alone all the cities. But there's always this weird like, oh, yeah, that hospital's open. Or, yeah, that little cafe's open there. That You can get gas here. This I mean, is pre-cell phone though. So all they have to do is shut down the telephone system and sure. that's it. <laughs> like it's right. all over. Yeah. There is something to be said about how we don't have any clue about what's going on in the entire world during this. I like to see it as post-apocalyptic, personally. Mm-hmm. But see that. Who, who really knows? Or you know, or apop- just apocalyptic, for that matter. I mean, the sure. tall man could be here to wipe things out. It's, an, as I see it, an alien invasion. That's a good no, point, because you, don't, point. And because you don't really see any other interactions with anyone outside you know mm-hmm. it, it's yeah, all I mean, sort of within this world where every time they find a house it's usually abandoned or there's like the gas station attendant or there's the yeah and that mainly i i just you know i rewatched the third and the fourth one recently so it's like some of that stuff changes a little bit but it's not like they're saying let's i wonder what's going on in chicago right now right <laughs> right you know like I, did the bears win it's it's not <laughs> that doesn't happen in this it's kind of like no there's this acceptance that this guy's coming and taking over small towns. Right. And who knows what's going on in the rest of the world, but 
this is their world. In the movie, it may as well be like its own universe in that way where it doesn't even matter what's going on down the street because the crisis is this little stretch of land or this city right. or this mausoleum. And it's weird because it really isolates the movie and thus the viewer in a way that other horror movies kind of don't do. They don't reach out for that. So in this, there is that like, uh, and Josh, I think you were kind of talking about it where, what is it just a few days later and he's all of a sudden setting out to make it with this girl. But is it a few days later? Is it months? Is it weeks? Is it years? We don't know. We don't have an understanding of time. We don't really have an understanding of distance. We don't have an understanding of relationships to the rest of the world. And I understood the entire movie to take place in like four days. And (laughs) I think it's considered. And like, you know, and that's the other thing, like they get to this house and under, in my estimation they've known each other for the day you know they've picked her up hitchhiking and then they're like stay here with all these like we're gonna trap you here with bombs and weapons and all this (laughs) stuff and she's like not freaking out she thinks it's totally normal they come back there's you know monsters she's not even phased even slightly by the circumstances they gave her the rundown on the way there Look, we we we're dudes. We play but with weapons. When she get out of the car, if someone gave me that rundown, I'd be like, mm, "Okay, I have to use the restroom. Can you guys pull over?" Right. She's, she's a strong, confident woman. Let she's me, also an alien, to be fair. To be fair, she probably isn't human. <laughs> Let me spin this around on you guys. That explains the whole sex with pants on. Oh, right. Yeah. She thought she was doing a good job. Impressive. Right. Impressive. So let me spin this around on you. Like sometimes, in, in this. I'm not saying this holds up through the whole film, okay? But sometimes I like to think about this in terms of, like, especially at the beginning, it's like, okay, what if Michael really is nuts? Like, what if the first film was just in his head and he very he really is mentally ill, and then he gets released, and as you hear his inner his inner dialogue with himself, his thoughts, he he's just telling him what he needs to hear so he can get released, and then like that same day he's out digging up these bodies or trying to and looking in these caskets and and you remember reggie says hey um what are you doing if they catch you doing this they're gonna lock you up forever and and it occurs to me when when that scene's on it's like wow what if what if the horror movie what if the horror were truly that this guy is just mentally ill and none of this stuff actually exists that's it's a good point that's actually a little bit of an inconsistency too because he digs up the graves to see they're empty but the next town they go to, all the graves are already – they didn't even bother filling them back in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and these movies are filled with with inconsistency like that, which uh-huh. is – I think – it's I don't think it's intentional, but it's part of the charm Yeah, uh, for me, right? right. So it's like that scene doesn't seem like it's complete. I wonder if the editor was paying attention, right? <laughs> right. Or if right. Alchemy had snuck in and wearing those fancy sex pants she was wearing and distracted the editor. I could understand. But the point is that I just decided to make right now, um, I which I've forgotten, like I did with the the word on the alien podcast. So what am I talking about? <laughs> well, no, we, no, no, no. we were talking about how it might have been that he's mentally ill. Did that right. did that spur you to? Yes. Yeah, so I would love it if that's what it was, because I'm kind of a sucker for an easy, easy payoff like that. I, you know, not with Lost, but with some stuff. Like, I think they mishandled it, and I don't like the whole, it was a dream the whole time, Kenny. Everything's fine. You know, <laughs> I, that that can be pretty lame, but I do love 
that that could be a reality because I think the idea of a person going through that and believing it's real is is a pretty scary and sad existence. Yes. But mm-hmm. we see too much from Reggie's point of view in these movies, especially as they continue. I think that that kind of eliminates that it could all be in Mike's head unless he's having one of those episodes where it's like he's he's every character. Now that could be cool. Yeah, well, see, that's what I like about thinking of it in those terms. I believe that what's happening in Phantasm is an alien invasion of sorts, but I do think it's fun to think of it in this way, especially with Phantasm 2, because it's really, it's remarkably uncommon, just shockingly uncommon, that we get a perspective through the eyes of a mentally ill person. Like, that's one of the charms of frailty, actually, which is a, a great little... Uh, horror type thriller it's like okay Mm -hmm. is this guy mentally ill or is this real for him but i think it's super cool that you know when you have that different perspective because usually as horror viewers we're seeing um the 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 wrath or like you know the havoc that's wreaked by a mentally ill person but we don't get to see it through their eyes very often yeah that's a good point Josh, yep. you're very quiet. Josh, what are you thinking now about Phantasm 2? You he's, like he's crying. I, I don't and, have anything really to say about in rollerblading. It. Yes, <laughs> you could never get me in rollerblades. Um, yeah, I, I have nothing to say really else about the movie. I think it's interesting. I one thing I just remember that I forgot to say about the first film, in terms of it being influential, um, and I think this film is even probably more so because it kind of hit a wider audience or and brought the first film to a wider audience as well. Um, I think it's interesting to look at a few phenomenon. Uh, well, one is interesting to me, the Pan's Labyrinth thing. Have you guys thought about that or looked into that at all? No. So you're familiar with the pale man in Pan's Labyrinth, the guy who has the eyes on his hands. Eyes mm-hmm. on his hands, yep. Yes. Yeah. Well, the original film uh, Phantasm poster has a woman, topless woman, with her eyes, with her hands over her eyes, and the eyes are on the palms of her hands. Right. Oh. And I was trying to look into that and see what the connection, uh, if any, was. And it seems that they possibly were both um, influenced by a German symbol of Der Ritter, which I don't know anything about, but uh, that that I thought was maybe um, an interesting thing to look into. Um, but I wondered if Guillermo del Toro was influenced by Phantasm or just by the Phantasm art. He wasn't. Oh yeah. Movie. I mean, it, a- enough of his stuff. You could see how there's parallels there, you know, or, and he's such an appreciator too. So you've got to think that he at least knows and admires the films. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's also this character called the Slender Man. I don't know if you guys have heard about this, the internet meme. He's super, Uh super creepy. Yeah. Well, the original uh, Slender Man was based on a, on a still image of Angus Scrim from the first Phantasm film. They used his likeness and then, to work as a starting point uh, for drawing the first, really? or for creating the first uh, S- Slenderman. Yeah. Tell uh, the listeners about what that is, Josh, in case they're unaware, because it's pretty freaking creepy. So the Slenderman is a fictional supernatural character. I'm reading this right off of the internet that originated as an internet meme um, on a website called Something Awful, 
Um, and there was a forums user there called Eric Knudsen, a.k.a. Victor Surge, who created the Slenderman in 2009. But the idea was is that it was this ancient evil, and he basically they would Photoshop the Slenderman into photographs um, that looked like they were antique, like from the 80s, from the 50s, from the 20s, like going back and back further and further. You would see these images with oftentimes with children. It's very with, unsettling. And then with the Slender Man, he was missing often facial features, sometimes all of his facial features. Um, and he has a very similar or initially he had a very similar outline to Angus Scrim. He becomes more exaggerated um, in his as the character kind of continues but the it became this huge uh conspiracy like was this real and then it was found to be you know it was traced back to its roots but it's become very popular there's a ton of fan fiction online there are video games based on it um apparently there were there were a series of stabbings in 2014 uh oh. violent acts tied back to uh readers of the slender man so i don't know where that exactly comes from there it says Beginning in 2014, a minor moral panic occurred over the Slender Man uh, after readers of its fiction were connected to several violent crimes. So, wow. Creepy. Yeah, interesting. But anyway, that that is also uh, influenced by Phantasm. All right. So should we wrap this one up then with the final thoughts and ratings? Sound good? Sure. Okay. Yep. All right. I'll go first again because I'm a big jerk. So everybody... <laughs> I actually like this a, a tiny bit better. I I appreciate it even more than the first one. I will always I, I will always like the, the first one. I think just because it was the first one. Of course, the primary film needs to have respect, everybody. But because this one takes it a little bit even farther, and it's it's very fun to watch. I mean, this is something that you know you could watch a lot. I mean, the first one does have some lull and drag to it, whereas this one I think cruises along fairly well for me and I love I love the the gore and the the spheres and so it's an 8.5 out of 10 for me I say this is a buy for Phantasm 2 what do you say Dr. Shock uh, I'm going to come in a little higher too I'm going to go 7.5 on this one uh, I say it's a buy and I say pick up the, the, the Shout Factory Blu-ray nice okay you know, because that they're first of all, Shout Factory just does a great job with all their Blu-rays. But um, yeah, definitely pick it up. All right, sounds good. Seven point five. Doc says buy it. What do you say, Wolfman Josh? I'm gonna say exactly the same thing as Dave. I think this feels like kind of a classic '80s movie. If you like '80s uh, pop culture kind of stuff, this is a fun movie to pop in. Um, I'm gonna say seven point five. Buy the Blu-ray. Okay, and Matroid, take us home. Well, obviously for me, you know, it's impossible not to be biased, I think, because of my experience. But I do think it's a 10. I mean, for me, this is the quintessential 80s horror movie. It it revels in its (laughs) 80s-ness in a way that I think is very successful. Uh, And and you have to buy this on Blu-ray. You just got to own it. But I I do want to say a couple things real quick about it before I'm done here. Um, the, at the end of the first one, you know, we, we get this out of nowhere. It's Mike. That was all a dream. What? That's a little weird. And then we kind of pick up on this one and, and everything's changed. And it's one of those things that I like to call a bizarre sequel where, you know, you got like movies like Bill and Ted's and Bill and Ted's two, where the sequel's just 
like that much stranger. It's kind of outlandish. Fright <laughs> Night and Fright Night 2, where the sequel doesn't even feel like it fits or belongs, but it is a sequel. And I love when when you get that, when you get something that even though the same people made the movie, it's just radically different. So you know it's the same thing, but it's not the same thing at the same time. So I like that this movie feels out of place, that it's tied to a movie I love, but it's its own thing. And it's just each one is kind of unique in its own place. And it's I, I feel like this is a passionate work from someone that loves the material. So I think uh, Mr. Coscarelli actually probably really loves these. And I respect that on a, on a very personal level, considering how much, how much I actually love things that, you know, like I love or the things that I create where maybe no one else likes them, but I love them so much that they're it, like, they just, you know, you can't go wrong with something that you have that emotional connection with. And sometimes other people will share that connection, which is kind of the point. So I share this connection. To me, this movie feels like it's mine. And so I love it. I have to give it a 10. I can't recommend it enough. And you know what? Um, Station, she'll be joining us on uh, the part three and four. She can't figure this movie out, can't see why why anyone would like it. But she admits that (laughs) at one point in her life, had she seen it maybe 10 or 15 years ago, she's like, I can see why someone would love this. And I like that because there is that element of maybe I, I couldn't like this now as a, you know, late thirties guy, but if I was 19 seeing for this for the first time, uh, yeah. Or especially if it's like, if I had a few beers and had just seen this, you know, it's like, there's all these scenarios in which movies like this can take a person and make it more interesting. Uh, and for me, I just had to watch this once when I was young and impressionable and alone. I just wanted to say, um, before we wrap it up, uh, this is the most available of any of the films. And so if people want to catch up with this one, um, there's a few different ways you can watch it. You, if you are an Amazon prime subscriber with the additional stars subscription, you can stream it for free, um, on Amazon. Also currently on Amazon, you can get the shout factory Blu-ray for 1899. Um, you can get the original DVD, which is really good, um, for as low as $8. And then there's also, if you buy it like in a four pack, it's called the, uh, cult horror collection. Um, and it comes with Funhouse, phantasm Two, serpent in the rainbow and and that is fine. Right. <laughs> I love Serpent. I have. I, I own that. I own that uh, four movie set. Actually, yeah. Serpent in the Rainbow is also getting the um, Screen Factory treatment. Yep. Yep. Real soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and listeners, just in case you missed it, we all four said buy it on this one. So go yep. get it. That four pack literally, you can buy it used on Amazon for one dollar. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that thing used to be at Walmart all the time. So and they're five dollar bin. Yep. Yeah. 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 The Jason drives across the country in a five dollar bin. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. All right. Well, uh, there you have it. Those are our reviews for uh, Phantasm and Phantasm Two. And so, Matroid, tell the listeners about what we're doing here with this crossover franchise review, please. No. Okay. Okay, fine. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, it's no surprise. This is my favorite podcast. I love any opportunity I have to come on here and derail conversations, make things uncomfortable, talk too much. It's my thing. So I really like to show up on this show and, and make everything a little bit less good. However, when you want to hear how less good things can get... 
come over to the science fiction podcast, which we call the sci-fi podcast. And uh, we are going to be doing the second part of the Phantasm uh, review, and that'll be movies three and four. And we'll be doing that on the sci-fi podcast. And joining us will be uh, my co-host and wife, Station, which will be exciting. And uh, I think all three of you, you blokes, am I correct in that? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Yes, sir. I'll be so there. for the first time ever, we get Dr. Shock on the sci-fi podcast. Yeah, I and I tell you, I've been, I've been, I've been wanting to come on. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm kind of upset I missed that alien episode. I would have loved to come on for that one. Oh, yeah, I've got one with you in mind. Trust me, it's okay, not cool. too far out. But uh, cool. and we had Jason on for the alien episodes, yep. which were actually very heavily listened to, despite you being on them. So right. <laughs> right now I'm going to and despite, and despite him, despite his love of uh, alien resurrection. Yeah, I married, <laughs> I married a lover of alien resurrection, so I'm in that camp. Uh, yes, not my choice is. necessarily. But, <laughs> um, and Jason has his sci-fi name. We call him Jalian, and Doctor Shock will make sure you got one too. Yeah, that's what I'm trying. I would love to. Uh, I'm trying to think of one, but oh, uh, yeah, I'd love to have. They one. take care of that for you. Oh, cool. Dave, Perf- even better. It'll even be better. provided. Yes, even better. We'll we'll find something for you. So, uh, yeah, that's going to be coming up actually pretty soon. So, um, I think at the time of this recording, I'd say a couple of weeks. So. Uh, it'll it'll come out uh, just a couple of weeks, maybe less after this one. Josh, do we have that figured out yet? Josh is the producer. I just I just talk. So yeah, we will record with um, these guys next week, Matt. So actually, Phantasm three and four will be released on the Sci Fi Podcast the week following this release. So one week nice. from this release, go to the Sci Fi and you can hear part two with all of us and Matt's wife. And if you happen to be listening to this episode like sometime in the future, like you've just tuned in and found this episode and you want to see how to get over there, we'll have it linked in the show notes. We'll definitely link the Sci-Fi Podcast so you can find three and four. So Nice. There you have it. Okay, guys. Well, I think that just about wraps up episode 82 of Horror Movie Podcast. We're grateful you were here, and we're especially grateful for our special guest, Matt Troyd from the Sci-Fi Podcast. Where can the listeners follow you and find more of your work on the internet, Matt? Well, uh, they can certainly find me at the scififipodcast.com. We have, I don't know, a couple dozen recorded shows there so you can hear a lot of our stuff there um we've got a facebook page you can find us on facebook the sci-fi podcast of course uh you can email us at ask at the sci-fi podcast.com or matroid at the sci-fi podcast.com we even have a phone number but i forget what it is because no one ever uses it (laughs) Um, but it's on the website. You can uh, read articles that I write for at least one newspaper out there called the Daily Herald at heraldextra.com backslash entertainment. I actually write under the name Gary the Unicorn, and they are um, usually comedic, poorly written, which is like my tag, but poorly written articles, uh, jabbing fun at everything and everyone uh, irreverently, especially irreverent considering that they are coming out of Utah County, which is home of Brigham Young University in Utah. So um, lots of fun. You can find me there and you can find me trolling uh, and and reading the boards at the Horror Movie Podcast all the time too. <laughs> and please go to iTunes and, and give us, you know, good nice comments on on stuff because that helps yes it does yes it does and i'd just like people to check out movie podcast weekly it's the clown car 
of movie podcasting. And uh, what about you, Josh? What are your plugs? I'm at moviestreamcast.com where I do uh, reviews of movies currently streaming online. I have a Netflix episode coming up, Netflix and Kill, uh, that is going to be covering horror movies on Netflix. Should be a lot of fun. And, Clever. Um, I like what you did there. Instead of Netflix and chill, mm-hmm. you said Netflix and kill. Very, yeah. very You're always good at pointing out very clever and making it not funny anymore. <laughs> well, which makes it so much funnier. <laughs> that's right. I like saying, get it? Get it? Yeah. I get it. <laughs> I get it. I get jokes. Um, we are also going to. I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. I'm also on the Sci Fi Podcast. I really want people to subscribe to all of the shows on our network because they're all great and it helps us so much get the word out and so we really appreciate that and that's all i have okay dr shock mr 2000 plus movie reviews at dvd infatuation what do you got well uh yeah come over to dvdinfatuation.com um i'm up over 2000 so i'm um, in the home stretch now Woo! Um, yeah, you wouldn't think 500 would be the home stretch, but it definitely is. And at DVD Infatuation at Twitter, uh, you can, uh, I do have a Facebook page as well, which we link to in the show notes. Oh, and also check me out on Land of the Creeps. Yes, Land of the Creeps. That's right. I gotta tell you, something very strange. I'm trying to, trying, to, trying to stay normal here, but I'm sitting here, the way my setup is, I'm actually in my kitchen right now. I have my back to the uh, these sliding doors that lead out to my deck, and for the last ten minutes, I've been hearing something that sounds like somebody going back and forth on my deck, and every now and again tapping the glass oh. of the. And just to let you know, it is 1:45 in the morning. <laughs> yes, so sounds I'm, like a dog running back and forth, maybe. With it, it could wagging. be. Could be. Look, if we've learned anything from these movies, it's that you don't turn your back to a glass object at the end. Yeah. Hey, hey Dave, True. go check I'm on thinking, it I'm by yourself. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, yeah, right. I'm, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be right back. Yeah. You're a pretty blonde. You'll do fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. Make sure you take off your clothes when you're before you check. No, it was it was it was it's it's creeping me out just a little bit to the point that I think I'm just going to rush into bed well, and, uh, and get out of here. Well, we can hold so it, you can. Go, no, no, that's okay. Go like, look was, and see what, what, was, what it is, Dave. Come on, this is. It, what was it? What was in Scream? I'll be right back. No, that that, that doesn't always work out. No. <laughs> do you have a Do you have a light out there that you can turn on? Uh, well, I would. The bulb went out a few days ago. Just go change it out there really quick. <laughs> Went yeah. out, yeah, sure. Let me, out, whatever. Let me take a look. Well, I'll be able to tell pretty quick because it's snowy on the day. Hold on one second. Let me go check. Oh, he's gonna do it. Yeah, this is, awesome. one second. This is live, y'all. Not- I was going to say, um, if this becomes really- the snuff podcast, are we still allowed to release it? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I think so. I didn't really tell people like the plug for the science fiction podcast, which is the sci fi podcast, but mm-hmm. it's come to the sci fi podcast. Where we're aliens serious about sci-fi movies. Oh man! <laughs> and that might not be it, but that sounded so fun in my head, and it was kind of fun to say too. I, I like what you're doing there. there you you know what? One thing is, um, we had some listener. Uh, it was Fritz Renfield was really upset that we have not talked about um, kind of family-friendly horror movies yet. We haven't talked about kids versus monsters and stuff like that. And he's like, where's that episode? I want that episode. And I said, you know, uh, this week on 
the sci-fi podcast it's family friendly aliens so that might tide you over until we eventually can convince Jay that uh, family friendly horror movies are a topic worth discussing there's some good ones there's some really good ones yeah I'm yeah. up for it Fritz I totally am because I tell you I got a an eight year old son who's into it so you know let's but when do I put it. The, when I put it on our tentative schedule Jay wrote seriously <laughs> <laughs> that's because there's not quite enough uh Horrific elements and gore. Although I will say this, I think I've said this before, but although the peanut butter experiment may not technically be a horror movie, it's the scariest movie a child can watch. <laughs> You're cracking me up. So did no, Dave? Seriously, it's weird. Did Dave die? Is that what happened? No, I'm I'm here. Oh, um, but he I sounds worried. Well, I, I opened the glass. I looked. There's no footprints in the snow. Mm. So I have no idea what the it's noise is. It's got to be a ghost. Yeah, it's a... It stopped. Well, I'm hoping not. But it's actually stopped now since, you know, it's... Uh, I, I, it's I don't hear it anymore. Those little orange aliens from Communion always stop when you look for them. Dave. Well, it, it, it's, a, it's actually a Japanese uh, cab passenger outside <laughs> of Doc's... Yeah, you know what? That did creep me out, especially the one where you said about the woman saying, am I dead? Am I dead? Am I, oh, at, that's, am that's I at Dave Becker's house? That is horrible. <laughs> and it's, that it's, is horrible. No, she's in your bed right now, Dave. That's where she yeah. is. You know why? Because <laughs> Juwan, I keep, just think of Juwan. <sighs> and every, I can't tell you how many times I've been laying in bed and I, I expect Guys, to I have, have to go like to sleep right now. <laughs> Well, so do I. <laughs> just, Josh, just don't think about stuff like, you know, ghosts. Just don't think of Asian ghosts and, and staring down at you. small children with white skin and dark hair meowing like a feral cat when they look at you. <laughs> I well, love no, it. There's, yeah, there's no, there's, there's, there is nothing there and there's no footprints in the snow. So maybe it was my imagination. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm phantasming. Well, it was, it was super, super poetic. There is nothing there, and there's no footsteps in the snow. But it was right. then that I carried you, Doctor Shock. So, <laughs> so anyway, yeah. anyways, that's terrible. I'm gonna get struck <laughs> by lightning. Okay, we love your comments. So get involved in the horror movie podcast community and keep them coming. You can leave a comment in the show notes, or you can email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can call and leave us a voicemail at eight zero one three eight two eight seven eight nine. And you can find all of our episodes, including the archives for the weekly horror movie podcast and Horror Metropolis at our website, horrormoviepodcast.com. You can subscribe free in iTunes and you can follow us on Twitter at HorrorMoviecast. And I want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for Horror Movie Podcast theme song. You can find more of Fred's music at frederickingram.com and I'll have it linked in the show notes for this episode. And I think that's it for episode 82, so... We thank you for listening and join us again in two weeks for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies.